Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Unfortunately, Ryan Nicodemus has gotten sick with the great Siberian itch. (laughs) Don't worry, he'll be back with us next week. We've got a special guest for you today. I can't wait for you to meet her. What an episode you're about to enjoy. But in the meantime, we've got Malabama in the studio. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman's here. What it is. We've got the rest of our team, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Social Jess, Podcast Sean, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. We've got so much to talk about today, TK. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk mm. about unhealthy family relationships, toxic relationships, mm-hmm. setting boundaries. We've got a lot to discuss. Yeah. So I guess we start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Jesse. My name's Jesse from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I'm a mother of two under three years old, and I'm struggling with letting go of my expectations that my parents and my mother-in-law should be helping us more raise our children. I never expected to feel this way. I always just assumed that they would be around more to offer help in ways of babysitting and just providing general relief from the everyday demands of parenting young children. Even when I ask for help, my requests are often met with, we are busy or have other plans at the times you need help. I try to schedule far in advance, but even these plans sometimes fall through. I'm happy they have active lifestyles of their own, but I wish they would show up more as grandparents for our children. Can anyone relate or provide advice on letting go of these expectations? So we're talking about letting go of expectations and joining us in the studio today for this whole episode is Nedra Tawab. She's a therapist, she's a relationship expert, and she's also the author of this new book. It's called Drama Free, and I have a hard copy before she has one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she came in like, wait, how did you get that? (laughs) The book comes out February 28th. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I would encourage you to go pre-order it now because we're going to be diving deep into this. In fact, Nedra, you can see my copy of the book is all marked up, and we have a lot of tabs to, to cover today. I'm going to lean on you a lot because I need some relationship clutter advice. We need to declutter some of these yes. relationships. I think we start with with Jesse's question here. She has um, some expectations that she's been clinging to. Mm-hmm. And of course, these expectations, which you write about in the book, our expectations are sort of a, a yardstick, a measurement for our future regrets or our future disappointments. Mm -hmm. The more expectations I pick up, the more I'm going to be disappointed by the people around me. And so on page 145 of your book, chapter 11, you talk about troubleshooting relationships with parents. Although I don't know that this is necessarily troubleshooting the parents as so much as it is Jesse's expectations of her loved ones. Mm. I hear a lot of expectation there, and I hear that there is this need to control how other people grandparent. 
we have expectations. It makes sense, but it can be harmful in our relationships with other people. I wonder what this person could do, maybe solicit some help from friends or neighbors or, you know, maybe paid resources and not put all of that expectation on their parents. You know, parents have an idea of how they want to live too. And it sounds like those parents have a really busy life. And so I think it's not so much about like letting them go, but living with having those expectations and maybe having to create a life for your kids where there are other people who help with that grandparenting aspect. It doesn't have to be a grandparent. It could be a childcare provider. It could be your friend's mom. It could be um, the lady down the street. There are so many other people who could support you and focusing on that one person and having that expectation will certainly make you very resentful about the relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, sometimes when we have expectations that create a lot of misery, we tend to focus on getting ourselves to get rid of the expectation or getting other people to conform to the expectation. But we can also work together with people and say, hey, how can we co-create an expectation that works for everyone here? And so, you know, there, there's there's the opportunity to sit down with them and say, hey, I would love to have you more involved. And I don't know what that looks like. I have my assumptions and you have your lifestyle and there's been some conflict, there's been some disagreement, but I would just like to know what can I expect? Mm. You know, what, what would you be willing to do? And then we can create an agreement and we can transcend assumptions and expectations and actually proceed on the basis of agreements. And once you have an agreement, you know what to expect, you know? I think quite often people don't know that we have expectations of them. In Mm -hmm. fact, we don't even know that I have an expectation of Nedra and I have an expectation of TK and Mallory and Jordan and Sean, and they don't know my expectations. How could they possibly ever live up to my expectations if I haven't set them forth and said, hey, here are my expectations? And even then, having too many expectations for anyone is a recipe for that disappointment. Because eventually, if I have 100 expectations for Jordan and he meets 99 of them, <laughs> what do I think about? The one that he didn't, how dare you, Jordan? I can't believe you didn't meet my expectations. But I did all these other things. Yes, but I'm so focused narrowly on that one thing that yeah. I expected of you. Would you be willing to talk about that yeah. a bit? We think mind reading is love. Mm. We think of love as this person can intuit what I want, what I need. I don't have to tell them. We see it all over TV like, oh, they did these wonderful things and I said nothing. When in real relationships, we have to speak our expectations a ton. We have to repeat those expectations. So when you have the expectation of this is what I thought grandparenting would look like for us in this relationship, it's important to have that conversation because what you're responding to is something that hasn't been said. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, it's not fair to you because your expectation isn't being met and it's not fair to the other person because they have no clue what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. So having that clarifying conversation and being open to a person having a different perspective, that can be your expectation and the other person has the option to not meet it. But perhaps... Maybe your parent says, hey, I'll help you pay for child care because I want to do these other things. But having that conversation certainly creates a space for some sort of community. But without it, 
you know, there's there's no options. I find it interesting in relationships how strangers, you know, maybe me and my DM and, you know, therapists and friends and everyone else are so aware of the issues we have with people, but the person we have the issue with is completely unaware. Oh. So we're going to these outside sources to resolve this internal issue. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that whatever we're thinking, it's, you know, it's cool to process and talk to other people, but make sure you're taking that information back to the relationship and actually having those conversations because that's where the change can happen. It's not just, oh, I need to tell everyone and get everyone's opinion. Mm. It's, I'm having this issue. How do I resolve it with the person? Because sometimes we have an expectation that they're not going to like it. They're going to say this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it would be so interesting to hear how they respond to this concern because maybe you're exhibiting that you don't want help. Mm-hmm. How do we have those conversations in the relationship and be open to the conversation not going in the way that we might hope? I think part of that yeah. is also, yes, you might have your own expectations, but do you understand what their expectations are as well? This is a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. And so they might have certain expectations of you you're unaware of, and that could be tainting the relationship. The subtitle of your book is A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family, family Relationships. Unhealthy family relationships, that's a two-way street as well. We can very easily make a relationship unhealthy if we have a bunch of unnecessary expectations or toxic expectations or expectations that can't be met. Mm-hmm. Wayne Dyer tells a story of how he bought a pair of uh, a, a pack of cookies at the airport and he gets on the plane, he sits the cookies next to him and he starts to you know eat them. And the person next to him takes a cookie and they eat it. And he thinks to himself, this person is out of their mind. <laughs> but he doesn't say anything, right? He just, I'm going to play it cool. And so he takes a cookie And the person next to him takes another cookie and he looks at them, hoping that just by seeing them, uh, they'll they'll relax. And they just smile nervously (laughs) and he smiles and they eat the cookie. (laughs) And so after this goes on and all the cookies are gone, he decides he's going to confront this person. And when he looks, he notices that the other person actually had bought the same pack of cookies that he had. And it was that person's cookies rather than his own. And he still had his own in his bag. And he realized that he was the cookie thief all along, <laughs> all along. And although he thought the um, he was being patient with the other person, they were the one being patient with him. So sometimes we think we're being the bigger person and that other person is being the bigger person because we're not communicating those needs and expectations. Sometimes we're the cookie thief. <laughs> Nedra, you have a whole chapter in here. I was reading it to my daughter this weekend. My daughter's nine, and uh, we were talking about in-laws. Uh, what's it called? It's called navigating in, uh, in-laws. And first off, she was like, what's an in-law? I guess I don't use that language around her at all. Yeah, Her grandparents are my in-laws, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I always think it's fascinating. And you say something in your book about it's not your responsibility to turn your in-laws into the ideal in-laws and I think vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Can we talk a bit? Because I think part of Jesse's question here, it has to do with the in-laws and her relationship with them. People have personalities and it's not our job to change them. And when we move into extended family relationships or in-law relationships, we sometimes have 
an idea of what that family should be like. And when they don't fit that idea, we try to make them that way. Your mother isn't this. Your dad isn't that. And it's like, they're just being who they are. And it's your job to walk into the situation and sort of be in relationship with them. We do that, you know, hopefully well in working relationships. We do that well in public with strangers. Like, it's not about changing other people. It's sometimes just, how do I be in a relationship with this person, however they are, especially if the behaviors aren't toxic or anything. It's just like, you know, this person is louder Mm. or this person tends to, you know, maybe over-talk others. Maybe those are things you start to notice and say, maybe this is an opportunity for me to practice assertiveness. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to think about why this is bothering me, a louder voice than I'm used to hearing. But going into the situation and saying, these people need to change to accommodate what I need from them, that is going to be tough. We can make a request. Hmm. We certainly can, you know, offer some examples of what might be supportive to us. But they have the option to not do any of those things and to continue being themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I I think about Jesse's question in particular. She's talking about letting go of the expectations because she has formed some that seem to not be serving her anymore. And so it's almost like like she's getting behind the why here. She understands that, hey, I have certain expectations of my in-laws, of my parents, of family members, of community, of whomever. And those expectations... It's not that it's wrong to have them. You're not bad for having them. In fact, you've been acculturated to pick up all these expectations throughout your life. But if you realize, hey, it's no longer serving me, clinging to that same expectation will drag me in a direction that makes me miserable. And by the way, I'll just get careened from one side of an expectation to another, the more expectations I pick up that cease to serve me. It's okay to have any expectation, but why, as you just said, why do I have this expectation of my in-laws? Why do I think they should be there? Okay, I know I need someone to show up for me, but why do I assign that role to this person? Mm. And can I let that go? Just not by letting go of the whole expectation, but can I loosen Mm. my grip on it? As you've illustrated already, Maybe it's not your in-law's job to do the things you want them to do, but maybe you can still get support from someone else in the community, whether it's a child care worker or some other family member that can serve you. Or maybe they can serve you as well, your in-laws, but not in the capacity you originally thought they might be able to. Hmm. With family, our expectation based on the role, it's much higher. It's like, this is a brother and these are all the things brothers do. This is a grandparent. These are all the things that grandparents do. This grandparent is a person. And it sounds like this grandparent has an active, thriving life that doesn't include childcare daily or weekly (laughs) or whatever that is. And so we have to accommodate that no matter what the role is, this is a person. Mm. We have to remove the role and the expectations we assign to those things because, you know, I think about when people have relationship issues with their parents and, you know, it could be a parent who has some unhealthy traits. They they yell at you. They're demeaning. And it's like, but it's my dad. It's like, but your dad is yelling at you. This person being your dad doesn't mean that they won't do these things. Mm-hmm. Your dad is a person. He has a story. He has stuff. It sounds like he has some things he should work through. But also, you can't 
because he's a dad, say that he can't do these things. He is a person who happens to have had a baby. Yes. And you are mm. the baby. You know, <laughs> these are grandparents who have grandchildren. But it doesn't mean, you know what, because I'm a grandparent, there are things I now have to do as a human. It's still a human. I think about... um when I was younger, some of my friends started to have babies and I would think like, oh my gosh, we're the same age and you have a baby? Whoa, I don't think I could have a baby, <laughs> you know, because it's it's like this is a person and I see the person and it's like, I never thought of moms wearing those shoes or I never thought of, you know, like, but it's like this person is a mother. And as a manifestation of that, you will do human things because mm -hmm. you're a human first. You just happen to have a child or be a sister and have these roles. And we have to recognize a human within those roles. There's a great mm -hmm. line in your book, parents are people with children. And how <laughs> simple is that? But we don't think about that. We just think that parents are parents with children. <laughs> like they are, that's their role and that's yeah. it. We've siloed them into that role, right? Yeah. As opposed to like, well, yeah, this is a normal person. They happen to have children. It doesn't change the flaws they may have had beforehand. In fact, if anything, it can often amplify those mm -hmm. flaws. Someone who's terrible with money can become more terrible with money once, once they have fewer resources, right? And so what's fascinating here uh, about what you're talking about is we often put people in a box. This is your role, and it removes the humanity from that person. Jesse, I'd love to send you a copy of Drama Free, an advanced copy, since it comes out February 28th. If you're watching the video version, I'll hold up the book here so you can see it on camera. We'll also put a link to it in the show notes so you can pre-order it. Like, Let's get Nedra's book back on the uh, New York Times bestseller list. Appreciate the book. Let's move on to our next question here. Allie has something for us. My name is Allie Seeloff, and I'm from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Since the passing of my newborn daughter three years ago, I have been told that I am so strong and brave. I disdain being told this. I do not want to be told how I feel. I am not strong. I am just doing my best to live my life and get through each day. I have also been told I can't imagine what it must be like to have lost your daughter. I think that's the problem. People can't imagine because they don't want to. What can I say to people to let them know these phrases are often offensive to those of us who are still grieving? Allie, this sounds something like um, our friend Rob Bell, he calls it death by paper cuts. Hmm. Where, And by the way, I have a ton of compassion for you here on you lost someone. What, a, what an experience you've gone through. And I want to, you'd have also compassion for the people who are saying these things to you, right? They're saying you're so strong, you're so brave. And I get that literally those things don't resonate with you and they may even be frustrating you. But what's the essence of what they're trying to say? They're trying to console you. And the mm -hmm. only way they have, the tools that they have are some words that seem offensive to you. Of course, it's not your friend's or family's job to they're not responsible for your upset, right? They're not trying to upset you. And so in a way, I'd love for you to have some compassion for them, but also thank them for the essence of what they are trying to say. It's a really difficult time that you've gone through and they're trying to support you in the only way they know how. Nedra, do you have any insights on this? I love everything you said and a few sentences come to mind. Thank you for trying to support me, but I don't feel very brave. Mm -hmm. Thank you for trying to support me, 
but that's not helpful for my situation. So you can say both of those things in one nice sentence so that they know not to say, you're so brave, I can't believe this happened to you. Sometimes we have to tell people what's helpful and what's not. Because for some folks, you know, being told you're so brave, that might be helpful. For you in particular, it's not very helpful. It sounds like it's triggering in some ways. So just letting a person know, I understand the intention and I would maybe like you not to say that anymore. You talk quite a bit about triggers in your book as well. And quite often, we don't know what triggers us until we come across that that trigger. Like, I think before all this happened, if someone walked up to her and said, oh, you're so brave, you might say thanks. Mm-hmm. But after this incident, after this event, all of a sudden, it feels like something that is almost shameful or humiliating, or she feels an adverse reaction to that sort of of feedback. And although the person is doing the best with the tools they have, Mm -hmm. they're struggling to communicate. And so maybe instead of simply saying, hey, don't call me brave, what would you like them to say to you, if anything? Do you know what would be helpful right now? Instead of telling them simply what's not helpful, and by the way, it can be helpful to say, hey, that's not helpful. Let me also tell you what might be helpful. Yeah, right. I, I, I love that. And it's, one of the things I love so much about Nedra's answer is that it's, if you just say, don't tell me that, or that's not true, you invite people to defend themselves by saying, oh, well, I was just trying to be supportive, but by expressing that appreciation. Thank you for saying that. It reminds me of the unwanted gifts phenomenon. We get so many questions about unwanted gifts. What do I do about this unwanted gift? It's to the point where it's offensive. Well, the first thing you do is you make the second step easy by taking the first step of saying, thank you for trying. Mm -hmm. Because so much of human interaction is just a misguided, misinformed effort to say, I love you, I appreciate you, I acknowledge you, I see you. And we don't always get that right. And to just acknowledge the effort makes it easier to critique the way they're going about it and to tell them what you need. Like, hey, look, I appreciate you trying. You know, that's not what I need though. Here's how I really feel. Sometimes the brave thing that we could do is start the conversation with honesty and say, I'm sad and Mm. I just need you to listen. Mm. I'm still grieving and this is still, you know, really raw for me. So when you talk about it, um, it makes me feel sad still. And I will be sad, right? Like we don't have to get rid of the sadness, but just talk to me and allow me to be sad. I feel so many things and sadness is maybe a big part. Yeah. I remember I was going through a really bad illness back in 2019. And one thing that was not helpful for me, whenever I, whenever we would come across someone, first thing we ask is, Hey, how you doing? Right. And that was not helpful for me. And I had to start telling people that were close to me, hey, you don't get to ask me that right now. It was a boundary that I set up mm-hmm. because I didn't want to lie to them, first off. Oh, I'm doing great, right? There's old George Carlin bit about that. Like, tell everyone you're doing great because it makes your friends happy and pisses, your, pisses off your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to just placate my friends, though. I didn't want to lie to them, but also it brought up something in me when I was going through this Mm. really bad autoimmune thing that I had to relive it and I had to explain it. And it brought that out in a way that was increased or amplified the pain and suffering that I was going through. And so instead, I would ask people to 
refrain from that. People I was closest to instead, hey, just give me a hug. Say hi to me. Mm-hmm. But please don't ask me how I'm doing right now. Just say, hey, it's great to see you, whatever. Just don't ask me how I'm doing because I'm not going to lie to you. One common theme I hear in, in what both of you are saying is giving people instructions on how they can do a better job at trying to say, I love you. And part of what makes this hard is sometimes it feels like the love is compromised by the need to spell it out. If I have to tell you to buy me flowers, doesn't it kind of feel a little less exciting? If I have to tell you I got a haircut for you to notice, doesn't it feel a little bit less, you know, complimentary? And so I, I love to hear from you on on how do we let go of that, that that need to have people see it on their own or discover it on their own in order for it to feel meaningful. It goes back to what I said about that idea of love being connected to they should just know. Mm. It's really hard for us to remember every single unique thing about every single person we encounter. I'm shocked when people notice the, you know, my hair is trimmed or it's this different thing because there's so many things to notice in the world. So sometimes I will say, how do you like my hair? Mm. Mm. I would love flowers for my birthday, just as a little hint, because maybe I said a few months ago, like, oh, I'm tired of flowers. You know, so <laughs> I want you to get the hint. Now I'm, I'm ready for flowers again. Yeah. So how do we teach people how to be in relationship with us? Because we are competing with their relationship skills that they have in every other relationships. And really, we're applying general knowledge. We're applying everything to everyone. And what Mm. you're teaching people is how to uniquely deal with you. That might be great to say to all of your other friends. But for me, this is how I want you to address the situation. Wow. We have another question here from Kevin. This is Kevin from Grand Rapids, Michigan. We recently had family come and visit us. It was really good for our children. For my wife and I, it is harder because we see how some of our family copes with things in an unhealthy way. We want the best for our family, and we know that everyone has their own version of best. What I am wondering is, what is the difference in wanting to help them and loving them? I don't know if we love them the way that's discussed on the podcast, because we do want to try and change and help them. (laughs) I'm going to force you to change and that's how I will show you that I love you. (laughs) Kevin, I totally get it. I think this is everyone's inclination. Hey, I will love you, but it's conditional love. Nedra, if you just do these seven things in this sequence, then I will show my gratitude and love and care and appreciation and understanding. Of course, you do six of them, but I'm still frustrated because you didn't do all seven, right? But He's talking about convincing other people. Well, to convince someone to persuade them is to unlove them because persuading someone doesn't accept them for who they are right now. It doesn't mean that someone can't change. As you illustrate in your book, you know, people can certainly change. I can't change you, though. And I think that's a distinction that we often struggle with. Mm. A lot of the work that we want other people to do is the work we need to do within ourselves. It is our work around how do I accept people who are different than me? 
we can't go into situations and say, this person needs to change to accommodate who I am. How do I change to accommodate who this person is because I love them? Mm. I think about our relationships that we may have with, with children. You know, you ask a teacher, you ask a parent, they don't love every single thing about, you know, the child per se, but it's, you know, this this child doesn't, you know, maybe sit down for 30 minutes or this child does this thing. We figure out how to work with the individual. We do that with kids. But for some reason, as people get older, we we have these different expectations of them. Like they they should know all of these things. They should operate in the same way that we sort of operate. And it's, it is unlove, right? Because love is... You know, this person is coming over. Maybe we don't have the same diet, but let me, you know, figure out a way that they can have something to eat as well. Love is showing up in respect. It is showing up to connect. It is showing some level of acceptance. Now, there are things that people may do that's unsafe. There's a difference between I don't like this thing and that's unsafe. It's dangerous. It's unhealthy for you. It's harming other people. Many times it's not that. Mm. We're talking about personality differences. We're talking about spending habits, sometimes stuff that doesn't even impact us. We just don't want to see other people doing it. Mm. We really have to tune into ourselves to figure out why is this bothering me about this person? That's the biggest work that we need to do sometimes. Why am I reacting in this way to the behaviors that they're exhibiting? Hmm. You know, an extension of that is love isn't about noticing people's flaws. It's about doing the work necessary to understand how their behavior relates to their broader why. You know, if I say to you, Josh, I'm worried about you, man, because you're not you're not working uh, as hard as you need to be working. And you respond to me by saying, dude, my life is going at the exact pace I need it to be at. I don't want to work any harder than this. Well, I'm making an assumption, right? I'm critiquing your behavior without endeavoring to understand your why. And sometimes we look at what people do and we evaluate their behavior as that's a flaw. That's a shortcoming based on what we want for them. But love is when you say, hey, man, I noticed that you said you wanted to write more, but you struggle a lot with being distracted. Is there anything I can do to support you? Because now you're affirming their goal and you're trying to help them only in the sense of offering yourself as a resource, offering your availability to whatever they need to live the life that they want to live. And so I would say if you're interested in helping them, instead of critiquing the behavior or trying to figure out how you can have a conversation with them about changing their behavior, I would start asking questions. I would start discovering their values. I would make an effort to figure out what is their why and maybe you'll find that their behavior is a perfect reflection of that why. Or maybe it's something that gets in the way and by you being genuinely curious about what they're after, they open their hearts to you to talk about ways that you can support them. Our goals for other people may not be the goals that they have for themselves. And it makes me think of the word lazy. Often when I hear the word lazy, I hear, what is the goal here? Like. Sitting on the couch and and watching TV on a Saturday, that's lazy. Why? Oh, because you have a belief that you have to be productive all day or someone has told you. And it's like, 
is that lazy or is that relaxing? I think it's the way that you look at that thing. I think it's based on what you've been taught about, you know, maybe relaxation. But we are quick to say, you know, this person is lazy. Yeah. And it's it's us feeling like they should be doing something differently. It's not really based on this person saying, I want to do anything other than what I'm doing. Yeah. And so... We sometimes have goals for people that they do not have of themselves. Mm. And we have to check that like, wow, am I creating a priority list for this person? Mm. Yeah. Am I saying that because you went to such and such college that you should now do this with your life? Is mm. that your goal for yourself? Is it your goal to date and then get married? Is it your goal to, you know, like all mm. of these things we put on other people. It's whose goal, whose goal is this anyway? Oh, living up to your potential. It's its a trap. It's yeah. a potential trap if you don't define what that is for yourself, right? I just want you to live up to your potential. You want me to live up to your potential mm -hmm. or mine? Mm -hmm. Have you taken the time to understand what I think my potential is? What makes me come alive? Or is this just your way of saying you think I ought to be someone other than who I want to be? Mm -hmm. I want to talk to Kevin about this word he used, help, because I think you can, it can skew one of two ways, mm. right? It's what TK was talking about earlier. Hey, how can I support you? And so I think we need to throw the word help out for this conversation for a moment, because if you're saying, how do you support the family members? Well, support beam doesn't go out and try to drag people into their point of view. A support beam simply supports someone when, or something, when they need that support. In your book, you talk about the difference between helping or supporting and enabling someone else. Can we, can we expand on that a little bit? Enabling is helping when a person has not requested any help. It's you getting them to the place that you want them to be. It is you supporting a lifestyle that they cannot support for themselves. And sometimes we do that and we believe, oh my gosh, I'm loving this person. I'm doing all these things for them. But it's very one-sided because Sometimes they haven't even requested it. It's not their expectation for themselves. It's your expectation for that person. So it's really mm -hmm. important to think about what's helping and what's harming. Because sometimes we learn by having to do things ourselves or having to create the goal for ourselves. One of the biggest lessons I've learned as a therapist is never tell people what their issue is. Mm. They have to come mm. to that point. Now, I will ask, questions to get you to say exactly what I think your issue is. I'm like, how do I phrase this and back mm. them into the corner to get them to? But it needs to come out of their mouth because when I say it, if I say, oh, this relationship is taking a lot out of you. It's like, no, it's not. It's like, oh gosh, yes, it is. I see it week after week. You know, but if, if I could get them to the point of saying, oh, this relationship is taking a lot out of me. That's when they start to change mm. because it's their idea. I'm not implanting a thought, but I can say to them, you know, in the last relationship, you seem, you know, happier at this point after the one year mark. What do you think is different now? You know, so I can ask mm. questions to maybe make you think about where you are, but I certainly don't want to tell you what to do next or what the issue is because it really only works if it's your idea. Yeah, and that mm. realization changes something within them. And it's not you as the therapist changing 
them. It's them changing themselves. And you didn't help them in the sense that you drag them to some deep understanding. Good luck trying to do that. Mm. But you were a support beam. And as you asked those questions, they found it on their own. They found what was going on right here mm. and, and right here. Let's move on to some social media questions. Alabama. looks like we got a few here. One from, oh, my friend Nastasia on Twitter has a question. Actually, she has a couple questions for us. Yes, she does. Here's what she says. How might we set kind boundaries with family members who seem to thrive on drama and chaos? What about boundaries with family members we've emotionally and mentally outgrown, especially regarding topics around sexuality, non-traditional lifestyle choices, and religion? Mm, so, Nedra... I- we obviously get dragged by the relationships we cling to. Oh, I wish you would change. Mm-hmm. I wish you would see my point of view. Or even worse, I'm going to make you understand me. Mm. And that yeah. rarely ever works out. What's the, uh, the um, who was it? Upton Sinclair who said a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, mm-hmm. right? And so, yes, I can convince you of something. Oh, but I'm, I'm different. I'm going to convince you of it. Yeah, but as soon as you turn around, as soon as I turn around, you cease being convinced. So for Nastasia, you have a, a chapter in your book about boundary violations, about codependency and enmeshment. Mm-hmm. And we talked to Nastasia about, um, well, creating those, and she was clear here, kind boundaries. Maybe sometimes we go out of our way to be overly kind, and maybe that doesn't set the boundary in a way that is effective. I think when people have a different perspective from us, we do try to convince them to think like us. And perhaps it's kind to accept that we think differently about something and to not argue about it. I know that sounds like, oh, that's that sounds like it's so easy. Hmm. But it's really agreeing to... We think, and you don't even have to tell the other person. They can say their one thing and you can just switch the topic because you already know that you don't agree on this topic and there's no changing your perspective or changing their perspective. There are many things that people talk about that we may not necessarily agree with and we don't have to bring them to our side. But that's that's what we think of is like, okay, this was a great conversation because now they think like me. And sometimes it's accepting people won't think like us. And the kindest thing to do is allow them to have their thoughts. And I have my thoughts. They don't have to agree with my lifestyle and, you know, my political views or whatever those things are. And it's it's okay. I, I, I still love this person. I still want to be in relationship with them. And these are the five topics that we just can't talk about. I found that with our own podcast here. So me, TK, and Ryan, we all voted differently in the last elect presidential election. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I think they're wrong or bad. And, oh, man, they'd be better friends if I could just get them to vote like me, see my point of view, right? No, it's—and I think TK is a bit of a—he's a Mozart with respect to diplomacy. Uh, he can have the most radical viewpoint. But it comes off as so, so um, normal. (laughs) (laughs) This is like a really nice way of saying you think I'm a fringe conspiracy theorist. (laughs) (laughs) No, what what I really respect about you is that you're able to talk about these third rail topics in a way that doesn't feel contentious at Mm. all. I don't ever feel like 
I don't ever feel attacked by you. Hmm. And even when we radically disagree about something, I still, I still feel supported by you. And how wonderful is that? That we can disagree completely and yet we can still have a, a nice hug afterward and I don't feel insulted at all. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think somewhere along the way, we bought into this idea that to listen to a person without explicitly stating, I think you're wrong, that that's tantamount to endorsing them. And you even see this a lot in podcast culture. It's very difficult to just let another person speak if they're saying something you don't agree with because we've got a signal to the rest of the world. I don't endorse everything they're saying. That really should just be the given, Yeah. right? That two human beings sitting down having a conversation is not the same thing as a concession ahead of time of everything that might be possibly said. And so there's room to just let another person say what they say. Say, okay. Mm-hmm. That does, that's not the same as saying, I agree. I submit to your teachings. Okay, <laughs> I got you. M- my brother, Gerald, who is far better at this stuff than I could ever hope to be. He's had a lot of people say to him things like, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And, you know, he just kills them every time with like, just pray for me. Just pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like, you should see like, I mean, because people just come at him with so much heat and he says, just pray for me. And it's like, there's nowhere to go for that. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. <laughs> what am I going to do with that? Okay, I guess I'll, I'll pray for you, right? And he may totally disagree with that person, but he doesn't need to spell out for them. I think you're misguided in order to retain the freedom that he has to go make his own choices. And sometimes that need to argue, that need to defend ourselves, that need to justify it's, it's an expression of the fact that we haven't made peace with what we really feel, what we mm. really think. And so we feel like we need the permission of other people's endorsement in order to have the power to live the lives that we want to live. But we don't. We need validation. Mm. We're looking for validation for our perspective, our way of being. We're looking for that confirmation. Like, no, what you're doing, it's yeah. it's okay. I agree with everything. Yeah. And you're right. There are times where... You know, if you're confident in your life choices, you're confident in the way that you think about things, they can have their perspective and you can listen and you can mm-hmm. say, okay, yeah, pray for me. Or, hmm. Yeah. I like to say, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And realizing that I don't have to be right. I don't have to win the conversation. Mm. In fact, as soon as I feel like I have to win, then it becomes a competition between me and TK or me and Nedra. Like, I'm going to win this debate. That's not what a loving conversation or a loving family is all about. Anyway, it's not about winning. I don't want to be in competition with my family. I want to be in, I want to love them and show them love. And one of the ways to do that, as you talk about in your book, is sometimes one of the boundaries, the kind boundaries we have to set is distance. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that a bit? Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Sometimes there are people who may have some views or or beliefs that are a bit disarming and we can decide how we want to show up in those relationships. It may not be, you know, every Sunday we have dinner. It might just be, you know, one holiday a year. We have the opportunity to curate our relationships as adults. Relationships are a choice. We get to decide how often and with whom we want to be in relationship with. And distance can be a part of maybe making the relationship healthier because we can't speak to a person as often because it's not always us who doesn't like to argue. Some people are contentious and they enjoy the sport of it. And, you know, maybe they'll pick. And 
to preserve our peace, it might be healthiest to say, you know, I can only have this type of interaction twice a year. I don't want to have this interaction, you know, quarterly or every Sunday or whatever it is. You know, you get to pick your energy level. Yeah, and it's exhausting. Yeah. When Nastasia said in her question here, there are family members who are addicted They thrive on drama and chaos. And then she talked about the other boundaries with family members that we've outgrown. Mm -hmm. And that happens from time to time, right? That just because we are related, we happen to share some bloodline together, it doesn't mean we're going to have the same values, the same hobbies, the same interests, the same personalities, the same beliefs. We're going to be radically different people. And over time, we can grow apart. And that's not wrong or bad. You have an option there. You can, I guess, backtrack and detour to their point of view if you want to conform to all of their ideologies, whether it is around sexuality and non-traditional lifestyle choices and religion. But you're not going to be very happy if you just conform to one other person's point of view in order to not lose the conversation. Quick question when it comes to distance. Is it ever okay to not say anything? And, and I mean, not just sit down with someone and say, hey, I can only do this once a month or once a year, but to just stop talking to somebody entirely and not say anything at all. I think it depends on the level of closeness prior to the distance. Mm. If you were talking to someone every day or once a week, perhaps an explanation or some tapering down needs to happen. In most relationships, we sort of taper off. It's not like this abrupt stop. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I was talking to this person every day. Now it's once a week. We're now at once a month. Oh, look at that. Quarterly. You know, so (laughs) it's it's sort of transitions. When when you notice that that's not happening, it might be useful to have that conversation to say, hey, put it on you. You know, I'm going through some things. I'm I'm needing something different. I have some, you know, I'm have I'm having some headspace that I'm trying to clear up and you know, this frequency doesn't work for me or I'm fine with, you know, maybe us talking once a month or so. I I'd love to, you know, catch up once a month. Putting that out there could be helpful. But there are times, you know, where depending on the relationship, it can be an aggressive situation where even having that conversation is not psychologically mm-hmm. or emotionally safe and it creates these bigger issues. So we have to weigh the, you know, situation with that person and really think about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I feel like each situation is unique. I don't think there is a broad way to deal with how to transition away from relationships. And that's often that distance yeah. seems to improve the relationship in mm. many instances as well. If it's someone I don't want to talk to every single day, but then I start talking to them quarterly and all of a sudden we have these profound, deep conversations. We're able to explore the relationship differently. Maybe that was the way to actually repair the relationship. And I didn't even realize it. At the time, we have another question here from Twitter. April has something for us. Can you discuss how to establish boundaries when the responsibility of caring for elderly parents is falling on one child and the other wants to opt out? Nedra, you wrote a whole book about boundaries called (laughs) Set Boundaries, Find Peace. (laughs) We'll put a link to that in the show notes here as well. For April's question, it's about, hey, I have a sibling And my expectation is for them that they should live up to the same exact level of care for our parents. And of course, I think one's love is not measured by their ability. So 
your sibling may not have the same ability to provide as you and having some compassion for that. And even though it's like, oh, I know they could. Well, yeah, maybe they can financially or they have that resource, but there are other resources they may not have that prohibits them from being able to contribute the same way you are contributing. Or maybe they just have a completely different set of expectations as well. I don't know what setting boundaries in this context looks like, though. I wonder if the boundary in this context is personal and it goes back to that. How do you manage this situation? It reminds me of the childcare example. Perhaps the support and help you're looking for will come from outside of you and just your sibling. Maybe it's aunts and uncles and cousins and nursing aides or all these other people, sometimes we get so fixated on the person that should be helping that we overlook so many people who actually could be helping. Mm. I hear about this sort of situation with parents in particular because as they age, there is this assumption like, oh, the kids will do it. And there's typically like this pressure on one or two. And we have to get really creative with how we handle those situations. It's not healthy for one person or even two people to do it. How do we provide community care? How do we think about, okay, my parent has had this full life. They have friends. They have all these other things, how do we pull in a community level of support? Doctors and nurses and family members and friends, even maybe your friends, to help with this situation and not just me and my sibling are the only people who can help Mm. with this parent. There are so many people who can help you with this situation and the support on one or two people is not fair either. Nedra and I were talking before the show and I asked her, uh, were you always this insightful, this wise? Like when you were little, did people come up to you for advice and you could give them advice? And she said, I spent most of my time listening. And she said, uh, I would ask a lot of questions, but the talking back came later. And I think that's just a great roadmap for acquiring wisdom in life and in relationships to spend more time listening and learning and being curious, inquiring than giving advice and feedback. And sometimes in relationships, people can say things that are so objectionable. It's hard to be composed and curious because you, you just want to say, what? You can't do that. Hey, I'm <laughs> opting out. I'm, I'm not taking care of grandma anymore. What? You can't do that. We all have to chip in. It's hard to be curious, but it's always beneficial to step back and treat it. The more dramatic it is, the more interesting it is. Okay, tell me more. Tell yeah. me more. Why is that? What, what made you change your mind? Why don't you want to help out with that anymore? Because in doing so, you not only put yourself in the best possible position to exercise influence, if that's an option for you, but even if that's not an option, you know what you're dealing with and you can find a solution that works for everyone. So whenever you have someone in your family that's not cooperating, they don't want to help out on something that you think they should help out on, it can be really, really beneficial to get curious about it. And, and beware of what I call the I shouldn't have to fallacy. But I shouldn't mm. have to have a conversation about it. I shouldn't have to tell somebody off. I shouldn't have to ask you why. Maybe you shouldn't, but neither you nor I live in the universe that we think we should live in. We live in the universe that we actually have. And in the universe that we actually have, sometimes we need to ask why. 
I shouldn't and they shouldn't are not relationship progress statements. Mm. So if you're making those statements, there's likely very little progress in the problem that you're having. Mm. When you mentioned that I was listening, I listened a lot to adults because I was inquisitive Mm. about their lives. Like, so how did you get into this relation, auntie? So, you know, I'm just like, (laughs) so when did you meet him? You know, I I was just listening because I was curious because there was almost... I noticed this sort of, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking of? Trend of disempowerment. Mm. And the disempowerment was, I shouldn't, they shouldn't, it should be like this instead of I will do. Mm. I can. I am able to in my life. So I I thought that was an interesting thing Mm. when I was a kid, that there was this disempowerment that people spoke about their role and their ability to change their lives. Wow. April, I would encourage you to check out a copy of Drama Free. There's a chapter in there about troubleshooting relationships with siblings as well. And I think that one might uh, might really stand out to you, especially with respect to this question. Now, Ryan couldn't be here today, but he sent me a text message last night and said, hey, can you ask Nedra about something in her book? And so I said, yeah, sure. So, Alabama, do you want to read Ryan's question, but read it in his voice, please? <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> Nedra has a chapter in her book about managing relationships with people who won't change, page 103. The following chapter is about ending relationships when others won't change, page 114. The question I have is, how do you know whether or not you need to manage a toxic relationship or end it all together? Mm. I love how Ryan's like citing chapter and verse of the book of Nedra when he's asking this question. Like you said in Nedra chapter three, verse seven. He's citing his sources. <laughs> you do talk about dysfunction in your book. It actually starts with uh, some ruminations on dysfunction. And I think quite often that, that clinging to any sort of toxic relationship, now it could be toxic because I'm trying to change you, that makes a relationship toxic. Or I could have unreasonable expectations that can make a relationship toxic. But any sort of clinging to a toxic relationship is almost a recipe for dysfunction. But can we talk a bit about that? Because I don't want people to misunderstand because in your, in your book, you're really clear. It's not like, well, on page one of three, I show you how to change people. And then if they won't change, I show you how to leave them in the following chapter. That's not what we're getting at at all, right? In family relationships, I've learned that most people want to stay in the relationship even if the relationship is dysfunctional. They are trying to figure out, how do I change this person? How do I change my way of thinking about it? And most often people will choose to stay. When people leave, I find that they are ready. They've gotten to a point where they have reached enough. I don't know what enough is. I've heard enough be, you know, they called me and asked for one more thing. That's enough. They, you know, cursed me out at this thing. That was enough. I can't... but. Our enough point is uniquely defined, and we have to be able to live with what comes after we end those relationships. There are questions from other people. There are changes within other family relationships. There is even a change within you because that relationship is now missing. And so people make that decision when they feel like, you know, this relationship is at a point that I'm re- I'm willing to deal with all the other stuff that comes with this. There are times when we may not have to 
we may not have to leave a relationship for it to change. We can decrease the frequency, like you mentioned. You know, maybe if we talk to this person less often, we're we're less impacted by who they are. You don't have to talk to people as much as they want to talk to you. And that can be a savior for a dysfunctional relationship, just talking to a person less. So you figure out your level of personal care in an unhealthy relationship. But I certainly don't want to say, you know what, this is the issue, leave the relationship. Because you have to live with how you decide to be in or not be in relationships. Hmm. In the chapter that Ryan mentioned, uh, the second one there about ending relationships when others won't change. You talk about this phenomenon uh, of personality issues, and one of them is chronic gaslighting. I was hoping we could talk about that on the podcast. Yes, chronic gaslighting. When a person refuses to accept any level of accountability for what they do, they try to make you believe that certain things didn't happen. They try to make you believe that things are your fault. They will not... Um, own up to anything. And that can be very problematic in a relationship. And when that happens, we try to seek the validation from the gaslighter. No, this really happened, right? Say it really happened. Mm. And it's like, they won't validate you because they don't want to be seen as a certain type of person or a person capable of a certain behavior. And what you can do for yourself is believe yourself. Know that what happened is real. And this person who did it may not say, okay, yes, I'm guilty. That's really hard for us because we want that sort of, we want that validation from the person who harmed us. And it's really hard for us to think of ourselves as bad people. You know, you mentioned that we can see those parts of ourselves mostly in hindsight, not in real time of yesterday, I did this thing to you. Oh my gosh, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, mm. we, we don't want to see that part of ourselves. It takes a lot of work to get to a place where you can accept someone saying something that's not so nice about your character to you, mm. where you can just listen and not defend your actions. Many people are not there yet. You might be. They may not be. So you can recognize gaslighting without saying, now you have to acknowledge that this was gaslighting. It's real because it happened. It's not real because they said it so. Wow. You you make me think about, I'm, I'm a big true crime fan. And whenever you watch interrogations, the more desperate the interrogator is for that confession, the more power the criminal begins to feel, the more relaxed they get and the more they begin to play mind games where they can manipulate that person. The only way to get the confession, if you're going to get it, is to almost appear nonchalant towards it. Like, I know you did it. I know what happened. You're going to tell me or not. But whether you tell me or not, I know what happened. And so I don't need you to spell it out for me in order to know what I'm going to do about this. Mm-hmm. And, and and there's something that maps over as well when you're dealing with that gaslighting experience. You've got to trust your understanding. You've got to trust your experience and your ability to do what's best for you, even when another person refuses to validate it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Nedra Tawab, let's give her a round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> We've got her book here. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's called Drama Free, A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships. Nedra, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure.
All right, y'all. Ryan's not here, so I need to tell you that it is time for the lightning round. This is where we answer your questions from TikTok. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Now, during the lightning round, this is where TK and I do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than a 140-character response. So we have 60 seconds to do so. Our lightning round question today is from Barbara. How do we approach the inheritance conversation without being disrespectful to family members? Mm. Okay, so TK is going to be my John Stockton for this episode. <laughs> he threw an assist to me. He gave me five minimal maxims yesterday <laughs> for this episode. Minimalist. I'm borrowing one of them. Put 60 seconds on the clock for me. <laughs> Here is my minimal maxim assisted by TK Coleman. <laughs> The truth hurts, but it also heals. Hmm. I'm reminded of my favorite David Foster Wallace quote. He says, the truth will set you free, but not not until it's had its way with you. Hmm. And that's what the truth does. It is painful. It can hurt us, but it can also heal us. It can heal us from our own insecurities because that's what this conversation is really about here. We want to have an inheritance conversation. We want to have a difficult or uncomfortable conversation. And so we avoid those things. How? By skirting the truth. We circumnavigate the truth. We approximate the truth. We pretend that this is close enough to the truth. Or we just avoid the truth altogether. And when we do that, we also... We create some resentment. We create some tension in our relationships. And when we create that resentment in our relationship, it doesn't heal us. It harms us. Mm. Oh, do you hear that Ooh. new ding in the background? All Professor right. Sean, he he swapped out our shot clock buzzer that was annoying some people. This is so loud. <laughs> with a very calm Eckhart Tolle extended ding. And that's let me know my <laughs> 60 seconds is up. The truth hurts but it also heals. TK, what do you got for us? Mm. The truth lovingly conveyed can never be disrespectful. Whenever I'm sharing my heart, my personal maxim is don't be a jerk, but also don't be manipulated by the fear that other people will label you as a jerk for being honest about how you really feel. The don't be a jerk part simply means this. You can convey a disappointing truth without using a disrespectful tone. The truth is not a weapon that we use to make people feel small or stupid. The truth is a tool of transformation. And when we give them truth, we are giving them a gift. And that allows us to speak the truth graciously. But the don't be afraid part means that sometimes, even when you are nice, the truth is not nice. And sometimes that truth will make people feel as if you are a villain for speaking it. And sometimes you have to be willing to be a villain in other people's story in order to speak the truth that makes it possible for them to be the hero of their own. Mm. Look at that, TK Coleman. There's one other line you sent me that I'd like to expand on real quick. And yeah. you started to expand on a little bit there. The truth isn't always nice, but neither is being politically correct. Mm. And I want to be clear about that because being truthful doesn't mean battering your friends and family, 
with your preferences, with your beliefs. Here's what I believe, and therefore you should believe it too. Yeah. This is my preference, so it should also be your preference. I like eating at this restaurant, so TK, you better like eating there as well. I'm not going to yeah. batter you with my truth. Yeah. Right? There are situational truths. When I say my truth, I'm talking about a situational truth. I enjoy eating at Chipotle is my truth, right? It's a, right. It's a preference, right? Or, or I feel angry about this. That's also my truth, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And I can do that in a way. In fact, you and I had a conversation this week. I got angry at you about yeah. something. And I told you I was angry. Yep. That was the truth. But I didn't show you I was angry. Yep. I didn't say, how dare you? What the hell are you doing? Yep. I can't. And, and you raise my voice and yell and express outrage in reaction to that anger. Yep. But I also didn't hide the truth from you because that wouldn't be a good friend either. In fact, it would probably harm the relationship because then I will bottle it up and I'll have that same resentment that I carry with me. And resentment is like mold. It grows and grows and grows and it makes us sick. Yeah. And so being politically correct in the sense that like, well, I'm going to avoid the truth. I'm going to tell you what is nice. I'm going to be the politician in this stance. Well, that's also not truth. And that's an accidental way to not batter them, but avoiding that truth will also create a type of toxicity that will permeate the relationship. Yeah, being obsessed with political correctness at the expense of truth is really just another way of saying, I value being liked more than I value helping the people I love being aligned with reality. Because when you give people truth, even if that truth doesn't feel good, you empower them to react and respond to their circumstances with more knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. You are not concealing reality from them. But when we say, oh, well, I don't want this person to not like me, we're put it, putting our own ego above their own evolution. And that's politically correct. And it sounds nice, but is that really, is that really love? That's right. Barbara, I'd love to invite you. I don't know where you are, but once a quarter right now, we're doing these Sunday symposiums in Los Angeles. And we've had people travel from all over the place. Our last one, we had someone come in from Germany, which is wild. They flew in from Germany to come to our Los Angeles Sunday symposium. We had someone from Denver. We had several people from Canada. We had at least two people who came up from Mexico. We've had people from New York, upstate New York, from Florida, from Texas. Now, most people, 80% are from Southern California and they come to these events. We're building this local dogma-free community, but you're welcome as well. I'd love to give you a couple tickets, Barbara. So Professor Sean, if you could put her on the guest list, if she reach, reaches out to us, you could reach out to her and say, thank you for your question. We'd love to have you at Sunday Symposium. It's only 200 people and there are only a few tickets left to that. So if you want to join us, sundaysymposium.com. It's Sunday, March 26th at noon. And you can get on the email list there. You can sign up if for some reason the event is sold out. You can get on a wait list as well. Barbara, thank you for your question. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. Did you know that over at, on our Patreon, we just published our 25th home tour? Each week, every Friday, we do the Photo Friday home tour where we take you inside our homes, TK's home, Ryan's home, my home, and even studio tours as well. Jordan did a whole five-part video series of the studio tour as we were building out the studio. And so 
You're welcome to check all that out. Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. The 26th one is just posted this week as well on the private podcast. We're going to go into my home. We have 10 different photos this week of my new home up in Ojai. You can check that out. Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. And because it's happening this weekend, Professor Sean, Professor Sean and I teach a writing class uh, two or sometimes three times a year, usually a couple times a year. We open up for 48 hours at a time. It's called How to Write better. And we take on a hundred students and we show you the whole process of building the writing habit because we're all writers now. We all are sending text messages and emails, but some of us aspire to do more than that. We want to write blog posts or books or marketing copy or better business emails that entertain and delight customers and clients and coworkers. And you can do that. The rising tide lifts all boats here with writing. And so we show you how to write better, the parts of speech, but also the writing habit, composition versus editing, and also how to publish your work, whether that's a blog or getting your book published. We have an entire week there. It's a four-week online writing class. It opens up this weekend for 48 hours only. Go to howtowritebetter.org, get on the email list there, and we'll notify you as soon as the course opens. Of course, We'll never send you spam or junk, but we'll let you know when the course opens. One quick word about how to write better. I had a, a teacher tell me once that when you write well, you develop your ability to think well. And we tend to think that it's primarily the other way around. If I'm a good thinker, then writing is just the process of putting those thoughts on paper. But when you write, you realize that your thoughts tend to be a lot more messy, a lot more muddy than you may have supposed. And writing is a way of clarifying your own assumptions, your own inferences, and so on. And then that trickles over into other areas of your life. When you learn to write well, you can think more clearly. When you learn to think more clearly, you can communicate more effectively with people in your relationships. And you can also process your own emotions and identify, specify your goals more, more effectively and so on. So writing well affects every area of your life. So that's my endorsement for why you should aim to write well, even if it's not something that you want to do as a profession. Yeah, if, you're, if you want to learn to write better, you're also learning to communicate better, to sure. express yourself better, but yeah. also to better understand the world around you, to make sense yeah. of the chaos, to yeah. provide some order. HowToWriteBetter.org. If you're interested, you can also download my free ebook over there. It's called 15 Ways to Write Better. And you can read it in less than an hour and walk away with 15 tips that will improve your writing today. All right, let's check in with the live stream, Alabama. We got any questions for us? We sure do. This question comes from Lily. My friend is having boundary issues with her family. She's quick to call her family members narcissists, but seems to be lacking accountability. How can I support her through this? We are all narcissists mm. on a scale, right? <laughs> Do you have a mirror in your house? Then of course you are a narcissist, right? That's where it actually, it comes from, the, the idea of narcissism. What's the... Uh, narcissist? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, all of a sudden he saw his, this is pre-mirror, he saw his <laughs> reflection in the water and became so in love with his own image. But isn't that what we do as well? This is who I am. This is my identity. We get wrapped up in our job title. We get wrapped up in our activities. Mm -hmm. We get wrapped up in how compassionate we are. In fact, we even develop an ego around not having as big of an ego as the other people around us. Yeah. That's also narcissism. And so narcissism isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It's recognizing it for what it is. It's just the ego that is wrapping up your identity and saying, this is who I am as a person. 
And as soon as you understand that, you start to develop compassion for the narcissist next door, the solipsist next door, because you realize that's also me in some alternate universe. You know, when I think about labels like narcissist, toxic, gaslighting, which are very commonly used phrases now, those labels are useful only when they guide us to insights that allow us to take greater control over our own experience. But those labels can also become a trap if we use them as a basis for feeling self-righteous, right? By declaring you as a narcissist, I get to feel better than you. I get to feel morally superior to you. By labeling you as a gaslighter, I get to feel good about my own rightness and so on. It's not that these labels are untrue and that they don't have a place, but the labels are only a means to an end. Once I've identified that my situation is toxic or that I'm being gaslit or that I'm dealing with a narcissist, what am I going to do about it? You know, how am I going to find the tools that I need to better myself? But what I would say, getting back to this, this question is, you know, a boundary isn't a boundary if there's no consequence for refusing to honor it. Now, a consequence doesn't have to be active. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to punch you in the chest if you violate this boundary, or I'm going to stop talking to you forever. But sometimes we confuse boundaries with bluffs. We say, I'm not going to take that anymore. Well, what distinguishes that from a bluff? How do people know that that's not something you're just saying, but if they cross that boundary, Reality is still the same, except you just feel a little more frustrated. To articulate a boundary isn't to just say what's unacceptable, but it's also to make clear what happens if what is unacceptable is persisted in. And that requires you to be clear with yourself about what you're willing to give up in order to have what's important to you. Let's check in with one more comment from the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us, Alabama? Here's a comment from Angel. She says, my mom moved out of state when my son was one month old after begging me to have a baby once I turned 18. It's incredible. My mother's mother was an amazing grandmother to me. Because of that, I expected my mother to be an amazing grandmother to my kids. And she might have if I hadn't waited nine years to have the baby she wanted me to have. Yeah, needing someone else to have a baby. This is, and Nedra talks about this quite a bit in the book Drama Free. We often relive our parenting through our grandkids. Oh, I screwed all of these things up. I know as a parent, I've yeah. screwed up a bunch of things, right? And if I could just go back to my 31 year old self, there's mm. so many things I would have done differently with Ella, of course, right? But of course, I could say that a decade from now as well. If I could just go back to my 41-year-old self, there's so many things I would do differently. But that's, that's the nature of learning. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm sure my parents would be more proud of me had I been more successful earlier on, right? Or whatever. Like, just take whatever makes them proud of me. If I had done more of that at an earlier stage of life, maybe they'd be more proud of me. There's no use in blaming yourself for her lack of involvement. And there's no use in living in a hypothetical world where you had that child earlier. Your life is what it is. You have the life that you have. That child is a gift. And all that matters now is you pouring your love into your child and letting your child know that you are the right person for the right time. That's what matters. And everyone who is meant to be a part of that child's life will choose that. But I would say 
there's no point in beating yourself up and blaming yourself for other people's decision, other people's voluntary decision to be involved or not be involved. Nedra has a few, well, she has a whole chapter in her book called Troubleshooting Relationships with Parents. And some of the subsections that I read in there about getting over your feelings with respect to how you've been wronged, right? Healthy ways to manage anger as it pops up again and again and again. And then how to stop hating your parents. Isn't it fascinating? The people we love the most are the ones that we get the most angry with because we have the most expectations of those people. You should do this. You should be this way. And as soon as you don't conform to that, I get really angry. If the guy across the street doesn't conform to my expectations, I don't really think much about it, right? Yeah, that's true. But the people close to me, it's easy for me to batter them with my own expectations. Alabama, we're going to mm. check back in with the Patreon live stream on the private podcast. But first, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, I'm Carrie from Denver with a tip about answering the what do you do question. I love your advice about answering that question by saying what I'm passionate about. But I found that my answers were being dismissed a little bit, maybe because I'm a stay at home mom and there's a little bit of like an entitled stigma attached to that role. So I tweaked my response. Now I answer with, I work really hard at maximizing the things that matter most to our family. I'm an ambassador of purposeful living, so to speak. And then I go on to talk about writing and camping and the other things that I'm passionate about and ask the other person what they are passionate about. It's opened up some really incredible conversations, and I'm so grateful for your advice. Hi, my name is Tracy Willis, and I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I wanted to share a couple of tips. I have a one-year-old, and we started our minimalism journey when I was seven months pregnant before she was born. And a couple of tips I have learned over the last year or so is um, are as follows. <clears throat> for gifts, ask for passes or memberships to local museums, zoos, gymnastics centers, etc. These get you and your child out of the house and engage you in your community. There's also um, extra perks, discounts, or special events for members that um, that come with those passes, and it's a really great way to do it. Another thing is oftentimes children under two are free for those, so really your membership only includes you. Um, maybe your other family members are plus ones. As far as toys go, rental services exist in many places. Our local library, for example, allows uh, has a toy lending service, so you can rotate toys out and take them back without cluttering up your space. There are also online subscription services that uh, that are similar. One local one for us is called Bloom Box, and it has really beautiful toys and educational activities that go along with them that you rent uh, for a month and send back. Another thing about toys is that I found is designating a space in your home to keep those toys so that they're not ending up everywhere around the house um, really helps you to kind of keep ma- manage what you actually have. And once that space fills up, you can get rid of those toys or let go of toys. Um, toys can also be donated if they're in good condition to daycare centers, children's hospitals, shelters, um, etc. You can also sell them at stores like Once Upon a Child. Um, as far as clothes, I've found going for secondhand is very helpful as many of the clothes get ruined or messy anyway. Often also the child grows out of clothes before they're able to wear them very much, so it's nice to not have spent a ton on it. And no matter what, baby clothes are pretty much cute because they're tiny and cute. 
ThreadUp is another great website that I've used to buy things um, that are in great condition, as well as Once Upon a Child. And then finally, with accessories, try a packing party with your bottles, your towels, your bibs, anything um, that isn't like the toys and everything. Uh, and if you don't use those things in 21 days, you probably don't need them. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. TK, let's dive in some talkaboutables here. Let's do it. How many slaves work for you? What? All right, we got a video for you. Let's watch this video. Or if you just listen to the audio version, it's from a podcast, so you don't have to worry about seeing the video. You'll be able to hear it. It's a quick, I don't know, 30-second or so conversation between two gentlemen on a podcast. And I thought it was an interesting question that most of us never, ever think about it. Take it away, Professor. How many slaves work for you? None. Can I ask you three other questions? Go so answer that question. Do you eat food? Yes. You've got a smartphone? Yes. And thankfully I can see that you're wearing clothes? Yes. Without doing anything, you are probably personally connected to 40 to 60 slaves in the world. Mm, I've never thought of it like that. To the things that you yeah. just purchased? Yeah. And if, if we look around the world, the vast majority of people are held in what we call situations of forced labor. Let's talk about this, TK. Mm. So forced labor is a type of slavery, we could say. In fact, we live in a world where there are more slaves now than there ever have been. And we often as Americans don't think about that because when we think of slavery, we think of something that happened in the past, some injustice, some atrocity that happened a few hundred years ago. But throughout the world, there's forced labor everywhere. And when I see a video like this, it's daunting. Mm. It's depressing. It's mm. upsetting. And also, I feel powerless, right? Because yes, it's true. I eat food. Now, one might argue that the food that I eat probably doesn't deal with any forced labor, but I think 99% of the food in our food system, there's some sort of forced labor there. I go to a local butcher. I'm lucky enough to have one two blocks away from me and they have a local farm there. And so I, I know that most of my life, however, I've purchased food, especially processed foods that involved forced labor of, of some extent. But beyond that, of course, I have a smartphone. That's None of that's made here in America. I couldn't track down who it's made by if I wanted to. And then clothes. Yes, we all wear clothes. And most of my clothes, in fact, in a bit, I'm going to talk to you about the shirt that I wear. I wear the same shirt every single day. And I rarely ever talk about this, but we'll talk about it here mm -hmm. on the podcast. But most of the clothes I make, or I own, are made in America, but that's not virtuous either when you find out that roughly 93% of workers in the garment industry in America are in some sort of less than ideal working condition. Doesn't mean it's forced labor necessarily, but it's also... Um, it is sweatshop-like sweat conditions for roughly 90-plus percent of factory workers or garment factory workers in America. And so there's a lot of forced labor out there. I'm interested to see how you think about a topic like this. Yeah. You know, I, I think there are um, two, broadly speaking, ways of, of hiding from the truth. Uh, the first is through defensiveness. Oh, no, no, not me. 
oh, well, 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 well I, that's only true of me because of, of this thing I can't control. I'm still a righteous person. I'm still a good person and, and you're twisting it. You're, you're, you're saying something that shouldn't apply to me. The other way is discouragement. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm such a horrible person. Mm. It's a little more noble sounding, but both of them are two ways of running away from what the truth might demand of us if we can sit with it humbly and allow it to be our teacher. Hmm, what does that mean? How did I get caught up in this? If, if that's true of me, and I didn't know that was true of me before you told me, and that's not consistent with the values I want to strive for, how did I get caught up in this? Hmm. What does that say about me? What does that say about the world that I'm a part of? What does that say about the various economic and political systems I'm a part of? I want to learn. I want to be curious, not because I don't feel bad about this or because I think it's okay, but because my feeling bad about it and my thinking it's okay, neither of those things are a substitute for what the truth is invoking. And I want to know what that is. Mm. I want to know what that is. I want to understand. And, and I don't want to just walk away from it. I don't want to just ignore it. And, and I feel like this is a, a hard thing to point out. I've, I've seen many conversations where this type of thing does get pointed out. And it usually involves into some form of rationalization or some form of guilt. But hey, you know, it just is what it is. But I, I, I think we need a message like this over and over again to challenge us. You know, what do we do? I, I saw an interview one time between uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Well, he, he was being interviewed and he was talking about all of these harsh realities. And the interviewer said, so what can we do? And he basically said, I have no prescription to give you. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm just spelling out the problem. And, and in my book, I'm spelling out some problems here, but I have no prescription to give you. I, I, you know, I, I might not have even written the book if I thought the answer was easy, but sometimes we have to sit with that problem and sit with that lack of ease, sit with that discomfort because the most meaningful answers are not always the ones that come to us with 30 seconds. You know, sometimes it takes a while. You got to sit with it. So that's what I think about it. I'm, that's tense, man. That's uncomfortable. That's tough. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. My first response is to be in denial, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I sort of go through the five stages of grieving here where yeah. it's like, I'm denying, and then I want to negotiate with it. Like, but uh, I'm not as bad as I could be or as, as bad as I once was, right? Yeah. I'm better. And okay, maybe that's true. But what is also true is this is still a truth. Food, phone, clothes, everyone is an, affected by forced labor. How many slaves do you have working for you? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Why don't I? I've never even thought about it because I never wanted to think about it. And as soon as you sit with that, mm -hmm. you realize that, no, there, of course, isn't an easy answer. What am I going to do? Stop eating food? Stop wearing clothes? Stop having a phone? Okay, no. But are there more sustainable alternatives. I don't know, but it's time yeah. for us to investigate. Ooh, that's, that's such a great phrase. This is why I like the title of your course, How to Write Better. Mm -hmm. um, I, I noticed it, it wasn't how to write well, because that's not a promise you can deliver. Maybe there are people who will never write well, according to someone else's definition of write well. But no matter who you are, you can always write better, right? You can always be better than the writer you are today. And I think that's an important 
something, a, an important frame for even thinking about these sorts of things. How can we do better? Mm. How can we think better? How, how can we have these conversations better? Because I don't know if in my lifetime I can get to a point where I'm completely extricated from those systems. But that doesn't give me the out of saying I don't have to get better. Maybe I can do a little bit more thinking about this and become less dependent on those things that require the exploitation of others. Yeah. Yeah. Got one more talk aboutable for you. Malaban, will you grab my shirt? Mm-hmm. Not the one I'm wearing. So here's the thing. <laughs> I wear the exact same shirt every single day. Every single day? Every single day. 365 days a year. Next year, it'll be 366 days. Wait, when do you do Thank laundry? You, Alabama. Or like, how do you, yeah, how do you do the cleaning? Laundry, never heard of it. <laughs> Actually, let's talk about that as yeah. well. So this is, every morning I get up, I will usually, I, first thing I do is I, I put this shirt on. It's a, you can see it's pretty old now. I got it off eBay years ago. and it's like a fleece. Uh, it's just a fleece pullover. Yeah. If you listen to the audio version of this, it's just a, a fleece pullover and it's rather worn. And I, not claiming this is the only shirt that I own. And it's also not the only shirt that I wear, obviously. I'm wearing one right now. In fact, we have a drawer full of like three or four of these long sleeve shirts so that when I come in here, I just take this fleece off and I put the podcasting shirt on. I'm like a superhero, basically. Also, you don't wear the same podcasting shirt every day. That's true. I don't. about the fleece. You wear the same fleece. I wear the same fleece every day, but I also wear, I have other shirts. I'm not yeah. saying this is the only shirt that I right, own. Right, right. It's like me listening to Christmas music every day. It's not the only thing I listen to, but Christmas is getting some love every day. Yes. Yeah, this is my yeah. Christmas shirt. Yeah. I just wear it every day of the year. <laughs> and it's just a super comfortable shirt. It's almost like a, a um, security blanket in a way. I just really enjoy wearing the shirt. And here's the thing. People often, I'll walk somewhere and they'll say, oh, it's it's such a nice shirt and it's so beat up and raggedy and like, (laughs) but I wear the same shirt every day. And I thought about having this discussion with you because did you remember the meme, Jordan, that went out with uh, Matt Diavella? He made a YouTube video and it was like, I wore the same shirt for 900 days in a row or whatever. And then the meme that was up on Reddit, we'll put it right here above my left shoulder here. If you're watching the video version of this, it was like, it's a, a picture of like a woman, I think, walking into her closet. She's like, I have nothing to wear. And then it's like, men, I wore the same shirt for 900 <laughs> days in a row. <laughs> but this just conjures an image of one of my friends who I was first, when I was first exposed to minimalism, her name's Nina Yao. She had a blog at the time. She's a yoga instructor in Chicago now. Uh, super talented writer and just a wonderful human being. And she was working for a company. And the story that I remember is, she was tired of being that meme where it's like, I have nothing to wear. And so for one year, she went into her corporate job and wore the same exact outfit every single day of the year. And it wasn't just a, a basic black shirt like this that no one's going to notice. It was a bright red sweater. <laughs> it was Christmas. <laughs> but she wore it every day. And the entire year, she wore it for one calendar year. And one person mentioned it once. didn't you wear that yesterday? And the truth is, as much pressure as we think we feel, we think everyone's judging us and everyone wants us to change and I need to impress everyone. No one's really paying attention. And for those who are paying attention, if they really want you to wear something different, is that someone you want to be 
allocating your time and attention toward anyway? Do you worry about them? Earlier in this episode, we were talking about Rob Bell's idea of death by paper cuts, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Because what yeah. happens here? We all get nine compliments. Oh, that's, that's a great shirt. That's a great, yeah, I really like your haircut, whatever it is, yeah. right? And that's all fine, right? Yeah. But as soon as you get that one little cavil, even if it's framed in a way, something else Rob Bell calls it, he calls it a chocolate-covered turd. <laughs> because what happens is what? It's like, oh, TK, even though I really dislike your haircut, I really enjoy your podcast. Right. Wait, what? I'm not thinking about how you enjoy my podcast. I'm thinking right. about how you hate my haircut, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And enough of these paper cuts show up again and again and again, and they make us feel miserable over time. We, It's traumatic to deal with tiny little paper cuts and cavils from everyone all the time and being worried about that. And one way that I don't worry about it is I literally wear the same shirt every day. Now, thankfully, I don't know, Mal, have you ever seen me uh, smell funny when I walk into the studio at all? She's not even near her mic. I don't know where she went. Get back to your microphone. <laughs> She's just hanging Wait, out. She's like taking a smoke break like, right, over I'm here. This. No, I've never, I've never noticed that you smell funny. If I did, I would tell you. <clears throat> there you go. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> See, we have an honest relationship here. But I don't. I barely ever even wash it, which is, yeah. I know it's strange. I, I don't yeah. sweat nearly as much as Nicodemus does. <laughs> but I wear it every single day. It doesn't mean it's the only shirt I wear. I don't wear this to the gym. I have a t-shirt that I'll wear to the gym and shorts that I wear to the gym. It's not the only piece of clothes that I own. But I wear it every single day and it's comfortable. But at the same time, if it were to spontaneously combust, hmm. I'd be completely fine without it. Man, you just make me think about all the different ways that we limit ourselves and what we really want to do because of arbitrary narratives that aren't even going to get us anywhere anyway. You know, like, oh, I don't want to wear this shirt even though I like it and it's comfortable and it's my favorite shirt because... Uh, people are going to think this is the only outfit I wear. And maybe people aren't going to think about you at all. Mm -hmm. And even if they do think about you, what's more important? You feeling great about what you're wearing? You feeling comfortable and at home in your body? Or someone else having a comment about you wearing a shirt two days in a row? I mean, I, I have a, a friend who he'll do things like when he goes to Starbucks, he'll like have a, a big... Um, like jug of, of protein, powdered protein with him, uh, or or he'll have like a, a big like a gallon of uh, like water with him, and he just he just breaks social rules like that. All the types of things that people are like, oh, I can't just bring that with me, or I can't take this, or I can't do that, and he just does it, and no one ever bothers him, mm -hmm. no one ever says anything, and so it's kind of funny. Your shirt makes me uh, think of that. Like, what freedom would we feel if we allowed ourselves to just do what feels free? without worrying about the narratives that says, no, 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 you can never do the same thing twice. I, I used to do this, by the way, with my teaching. I, I don't know where I picked it up, probably from my upbringing in church, this idea that spontaneity equals spirituality. And so I always felt like if I told the same story twice, that that's a bad thing because it's not spontaneous and therefore not spiritual. And so I would put pressure on myself that whenever I'm teaching, if I've used an analogy before or used the story before, I can never use it again because that kills spontaneity. Can you just imagine how much that compromises your ability to be effective? Yeah. I liberated myself so much when I said, you know what? If a story's good and it conveys the point really well, I'll tell it a thousand times unless I've got one that can do the job as well as that story. That's right. You know? Um, but just giving yourself the freedom to just do what works. And this shirt does the best job for me. Yeah. 
And I think that's the key because someone can go to, go to you and say, you wear the same shirt every day. And the, there's like a disdain in their voice, right? <laughs> or I can say, I wear the same shirt every day. How awesome is that? Because I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. I don't need someone else's expectation of me to change me, right? Mm. If it ever smells bad, I know the friends that I love and care about, they're going to tell me. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, can we spend uh, <laughs> 90 seconds on the death by a thousand paper cuts? Thing? Let's do it. So w- one of the reasons this is a issue is because our brains are evolved to notice things that could be wrong because that's essential for our survival. If we notice things that are going well with as much emphasis as things that could be going wrong, we would be paralyzed and we'd never be able to act because this universe is flooded with an overwhelming amount of information about things being well, right? Like I, I, I simply can't afford to just be in awe all day long about the fact that my heart's beating, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, the fact that my toes don't hurt right now or that my ears are perfectly comfortable, you know? Like you would never get through a day. Oh, wow, all the atoms and molecules in my body are just working so well. And the microphone is working so well. And look at how gravity is keeping this coffee cup in place right now. And look at how the ink is on the paper and the sun is shining right now. And, you know, we're breathing in the oxygen. He sounds like like he's on ketamine. (laughs) Exactly, right? That's why people that are are high like that, they're often just kind of like, just stuck in this state of just looking at a blade of grass, a blade of grass for like an hour, and it's amazing. And so it's more efficient relative to our survival to notice the thing that could kill us, to notice the thing that could be a threat. And so when you get a thousand compliments, like, okay, I don't need to be aware of that to survive, but it's the one person who says, you're an idiot. Well, that could be a threat. That that might hurt me. Mm-hmm. I might need to do something about that. If too many people think that, my career might be over. And so you actually have to practice the other way around. Even though the good is more prevalent, it's far less obvious. And so you, you have to make it a practice every day to notice things like the good stuff, the stuff that's working. And as you practice that, it becomes easier to orient your life around that rather than making everything about the one negative comment, the one criticism, the one person who has a problem with you wearing that shirt every day or whatever it may be. The inverse tends to work really well for me. And as flawed, as imperfect as I am with it, the thing that works best to dampen any sort of criticism, because we get quite a bit of it, is to not let the positive feedback also be worth anything to me. So it's okay to enjoy it, to appreciate Mm -hmm. it, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I don't appreciate it. But as soon as I need the pleasantries, as soon as I need the veneration or the applause from someone else, it makes all of the criticism sting. But as soon as I cease to need the applause, the pats on the back, I also don't mind the criticism. Mm -hmm. It's like a stream. Occasionally some dirt just flows by and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad stream because there's dirt in it. Yeah. It's just some dirt in a stream. Yeah. I just flow with it. Now, as a compliment to that, th- there's an aspect of focusing on what's working that, that doesn't have to be like positive comments. So like if someone makes a negative comment, there's something that's working in there too that, that can be focused on. And that is, hey, man, I'm doing it. I'm doing the real thing, right? It's like being criticized as graduation. I used to have students who were afraid to write 
because they 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 would think, oh man, if I if I put my work out there, it's just going to be criticized. And I laugh and say, <laughs> you wish you were that lucky. That's not going to happen. When you put your stuff out there, most people are going to ignore it. Mm. And they're going to keep scrolling on TikTok. Mm -hmm. They don't care about what you're creating. They don't care about your book, your work of art. Not trying to be harsh, but like the overwhelming majority of people will ignore your initial expression of creative impulses. It's not until you get criticized that you know you've graduated to being a player in the game. You've actually overcome the resistance and you're putting your stuff out there. Now someone's like, I hate you. That's a reward for taking a stance. You know, if, if no one's like, I don't like you, I disagree with you, I hate you. If you're not getting any of that, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. You know, one of the best things I ever did for my writing was for 10 years, I didn't write for an audience at all. I wrote almost every day. Yeah. And I never wrote for an audience. In fact, the only audience who was seeing my writing was a list of publishers and agents and potential agents who all told me no. Until just wow. a couple of years ago, I had a two-inch thick stack of rejection letters. And I originally was going to publish this. It just was going to be incoherent. So I decided to get rid of it to let it go. But I had almost two inches of rejection letters from mostly agents who were saying no, 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 no. And unbeknownst to me, my writing was not that good because I was still shaping and learning but even when it became good, I was still getting rejection letters. And even now, as the minimalist, when we go pitch a film, you know, there's several things that we've pitched, and I'll share this on the private podcast. We pitched a documentary called Advertisements Suck. I almost got a standing ovation in the room with it, and still it didn't sell. Everyone turned it down, right? Yeah. We, I pitched a documentary called Scrolling is New Smoking about digital minimalism. Didn't go anywhere, right? We spent tens of thousands of dollars filming this thing. It wasn't the whole thing, but uh, filming a, a trailer for it, right? And still didn't go anywhere. Our most recent project, which we're pitching right now, and it does seem to be going somewhere, is called The Big Simple. But I've gotten so many rejections yeah. on that as well. Our first film, which has been seen by more than 80 million people, was a result of multiple rejections. We did it on our own because we got so many no's. We said, all right, I'm good at doing things on my own. So I'm going to do this on my own as well with Matt and Ryan and Jeff and Dave and the rest of the team. And we put together this film and then Netflix still said no. And so, oh, we'll do a theatrical release on our own. And many theaters said no, but we still got it in 400 theaters. And then we submitted to a bunch of film festivals. And most of them said mm. no. Yeah. And then we went back to Netflix and they said no again. And so we put it out on iTunes and Amazon. And eventually it was so successful because of the people who watched it got value from it. Mm. Even though Netflix and none of the other places could see the vision, the people who watched it saw the value in it. And Netflix came back to us and they said, hey, you know that, that whole minimalism thing, we'd be interested in the streaming rights for it. And so we gave it to Netflix for six years and we just got back the streaming rights recently and we're determining what to do with it next. But millions and millions of people saw that as a result of no, 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 no. Yeah. But I kept saying yes to myself. And I think that was the key. There's a, a delusional confidence in that uh, somewhere in there, right? Because I'm willing to keep saying yes to me, even in the face of a thousand no's. You know, when other people tell you no, you can keep saying yes to yourself by using that no as an opportunity to learn. And it sounds like one of the things you learned is that 
no here means you're not the right audience for this. Yes. Right? It doesn't mean I don't have the permission to tell the stories I want to tell. It means, hey, I get it. This whole industry over here is built around ad sucking. Right. <laughs> so of course you don't want me to hear me say you suck. I got it. Not the right audience. But that doesn't mean nobody wants to hear it. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's spot on. Alabama, it's time for something very special. What Ooh, time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for TK's tweet of the week. Oh, you've got something here by Soleil. What do you got for us, TK Cole? All right. From Soleil. The best way to wake people up is to live your life. Your supreme living does all the convincing. Those who are ready will see it. Yes. And yet, we were talking about this with Nedra earlier, right? I want to change you. And I get the impulse. Kevin's question is spot on. That's me asking that question not even that long ago, five years ago. I At one point, I had to apologize to Ryan because I realized how much I was trying to manipulate persuade, convince him of my singularly correct point of view. I am right, and therefore you must be wrong. But don't worry, Ryan. All I have to do is convince you of my rightness. Yeah. And that'll make you feel better, right? No, of course. It just made him feel like crap because then at some point, if I was really persuasive, then he just felt like he was wrong. And then he felt like he was lesser than merely because I was more persuasive than the story he was telling himself. But the truth is, by living my life, that is what changed him originally with the minimalism thing. Mm. I never went to Ryan and said, hey, look at me. I'm a minimalist, Ryan. And you've got so much stuff, you need to get rid of it. Because that would have been, well, it would have been counterproductive. Yeah. Because what was productive Hey, Josh, what's going on with you? You seem so much happier right now. You seem freer. Mm. You seem so much calmer. Mm. I was living my life. And that persuaded him without any persuasion at all. I remember when I was graduating high school, I told one of my best friends, I says, man, I'm going to do something in my life. And I said, when I do something big, I'm going to call you. And he said, if you do something big, you won't need to call me. (laughs) if you do anything that's worth calling me about, you won't have to make the call, right? (laughs) And I feel like that's also a way of looking at the philosophies that we want to preach to the people in our lives in order to make them change. It's like, hey, if you got something worth sharing, you won't have to shove it down your throats. Mm -hmm. You won't have to shove it down their throats. You know, it's like, I remember earlier in my career, every little thing I thought about doing I would share it with people. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I got an idea for this. Hey, I might be in the middle of doing this. Hey, I'm applying for a job right now. Hey, I'm interviewing for a job. I just did an interview for a job. I might get that job someday. And as I got older, I started to realize there's nothing like that sweet, sweet feeling of having people call you. Mm. And they're like, hey, man, why you didn't tell me you were doing that thing? Mm. Hey, man, why you didn't tell me you were in that documentary? Why you didn't tell me that you were part of that? Why didn't you tell me you were moving? Oh, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm so immersed in living my dreams that I forgot to preach it to you. And now you're calling me, asking me why I didn't tell you about the dreams that I'm pursuing. That's the sweetest feeling, man, when you're not begging people to be your audience for things, but they're calling you up, writing you saying, hey, 
tell me more about what you're doing. And that applies to the changes we want to see other people make. It's like when you're trying to change them, the resistance they express towards you, it'll just steal your fire and make you less motivated to want to live your life. But when you focus on you and doing what you got to do, you're stoking that fire. And that's what people respond to. They respond to the light, the energy that you radiate when you own the life you're living. Speaking of fire, we have one of our Patreon subscribers. They want to know whether or not they should set one of their possessions on fire. Whoa. <laughs> we have a little we have a little segment we call Amass It or Trash It. And people write in to us and they say, hey, I've got this thing. And tell me, should I hold on to it? Should I amass it? Or should I let it go? Donate it? Sell it? Mm. Should I trash it? Amass it or trash it? Lisa from Patreon has something for us. By the way, you can send us your ambassador trash and also your impulse purchases, your obsolete objects, your sucky advertisements, podcast at theminimalists.com. That's the email address. Malabama, what's Lisa have to say for us? Dear Joshua, Ryan, TK, and the team, I have something for ambassador trash it, my hair dryer. To give a little context, I have fairly long hair and I live in the Boston area where it gets below freezing quite often in the winter. My normal routine is to shower at night and let my hair dry naturally before the morning. I don't really enjoy blow drying my hair and I've noticed it dries my hair out. Sometimes though, it makes sense to shower in the morning for whatever reason and I'll just go out with wet hair. This works okay unless it's below freezing in which case I've had instances where my hair literally freezes into strands of ice. So I have a hairdryer, but I hate using it. I actually don't think I used it once last winter, even though it would have been to my benefit to use it a few times. I'm not sure whether I should get rid of it, or maybe I should be better about using it, or perhaps it would just make sense to research a better hairdryer that works more quickly, since mine's just a cheap one. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh Lisa. Amass it or trash it, or should I buy a bigger, better one? (laughs) I guess that's the third option here. Should I spend more money? And by the way, I get it because... Quite often what happens, we buy a cheap version of a thing and then it doesn't live up to what we thought it would do for us, right? You mm-hmm. buy the cheapest blender and it breaks after three uses or you, you buy something that just doesn't serve the role you want it to serve. And it's because we were unwilling or unable mm-hmm. to part with more money at the time in order to get the thing that would actually serve us. And so I think it's actually a fair question, Lisa, about, hey, what are you going to do with your hair dryer, because the one you have right now doesn't seem to serve you. It doesn't fit within your seasonality rule, right? Have I used it in the last 90 days? If not, am I going to use it in the next 90 days? It sounds like the answer to both of those is no. Okay, well, then you could you could let it go. By the way, mm. you can download our free minimalist rule book, 16 Rules for Living with Less. One of those is the seasonality rule. We also call it the 90-90 rule. TheMinimalists.com slash rulebook to download that for free. And you can find these different boundaries that we set up to make our life more livable, to thrive. Now, of course, I'm not going to ask TK or Jordan or Professor Sean whether or not she should have the hair dryer because all three of them have no hair. And so I personally have a hair dryer. I'm biased here as well. In fact, if you saw our first documentary, Minimalism, you saw that I travel with only one small bag, but even there, there was a hair dryer in in the bag, a, a travel hair dryer. I will say this, Lisa, if you thought you were going to use it and then you didn't for those 90 days, yeah, it's a sign you can let it go. But if you didn't use it because it's just a piece of junk and you hate using that particular hair dryer, 
then yes, maybe a nicer one would serve you. It sounds to me, however, like you don't really get much value from a hairdryer. In fact, it extracts some value from your life. It gets in the way. And therefore, a hairdryer for you is clutter. A hairdryer for me is essential. Hey. <laughs> um, I was talking with Seth Godin once. <laughs> Who also, who also is in the same hair position as me. <laughs> uh, neither one of us care very much about hairdressers. Um, love that man. Anyway, I was talking with Seth Godin once and he said there was a period in his career when he was younger, uh, when he was working with people that were really mean-spirited and manipulative and it forced him to get really assertive and crafty and learning how to deal with those kind of people. But there came a point where he said, you know what? I'm getting really good at dealing with manipulative people. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life getting good at things that I don't want to be great at. And so he had to make a decision to start focusing on the kind of people he wanted to work with rather than forcing himself to be great at working with people that he hated. And I would say the same thing about this hairdryer or any other thing in life is why build a life around things that you hate. Hmm. And there's only one word I heard when describing the blow dryer and you used it more than once. Hate it. Hate mm-hmm. it. Hate using it. Hate it. Hate using it. Should I become good at it? Should I try harder? Should I, should I be more patient? Should I give it a second chance? Hate using it. Hate using it. And it's not the sort of thing that you need to use in order to keep your job. It's not something that some other person is forcing upon you. No one's giving you a paycheck for using it. I just hate using it. Should I become good at it? I hate using it. Mm. If your goal is to get by without using it, I couldn't think of anything that would support that goal and push you in that direction than taking away the option of having to use it, especially when you hate it. Yeah. Oh, it's spot on. You can always give me your hairdryer, but only if it's a nice one. My hairdryer is really nice. And to be honest, I don't need another one. So we're good to go. The verdict is in. Trash it. Thanks, burn Lisa. It, burn it, right? Burn it. <laughs> don't burn it. Set don't it burn on it. Fire. <laughs> I think that's where the spontaneous combustion rule does come in, though. If this thing were to spontaneously combust, it sounds to me like Lisa would feel relief. She wouldn't feel the need to go out and replace it. That's a sign. Mm-hmm. You can let it go. Part of the minimalist TV show, we come in and do like magic tricks. We look at people's objects. We go, boom, spontaneously combust. It goes up in smoke. And if they go, oh, no, I needed that. You say, all right, all right. And then you bring it back. <laughs> That's a killer magic trick. You're onto something there, TK. Yeah, onto something. <laughs> Let's move on to our sucky ads segment. Now, Nicodemus sent this to us, but he's not here and I wanted him to talk about it. So I'm going to set aside this one. I'll tease it for next week. So TK, there is a new patent. I think it was Samsung who patented it, mm-hmm. that you can yell at the TV if you wanted to skip the commercials. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and what does it do? Does it skip the commercial? Uh, supposedly, it's... No, but think about what that will do right. if every time, that's how much we hate ads that I have to yell at my TV to get it to stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wild. And I've had several people tweet this to me in the last few weeks since it came out. But we'll talk about that a bit next week. Actually, TK is going to be gone next week. He's You're talking at another school, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So it'll be me and Ryan in here hanging out. 
I don't know what to even think of that. Like part of me is grateful that I could skip commercials and get rid of them. But I feel teretic in a way, having to yell at my TV in order to bypass the ads. How about we just don't put the advertisements in there and then we'll all be just fine. It's funny, man, because whenever people are given the option to skip an ad or opt out, they take it. They may not always pay for it, right? I, I get someone saying, oh, I just don't have the extra $6.99 a month to do the ad-free option. But whenever that little skip ad thing pops up and you're in the room and you're sitting there, you're not looking at that video for the ad. You're looking for the program. And that ad is something that you got to put up with in order to enjoy what you really want to enjoy. They skip it. They skip it. But this is, this is the difference between saying ads suck and the advertisement industry sucks. Right. It's sort of like when I talk about compulsory schooling and point out the problems with that. That doesn't mean that teachers suck. That doesn't mean that all the well-meaning people who work in education aren't trying their best to do what they can as part of a broken system to help the lives of these students. No, Mm -hmm. no, no. Not saying that at all. It's that this experience sucks and our body lets us know every time we're confronted with it because we're always looking for a way to skip it. Or get out of it. And man, like the opportunity to yell at it. I mean, what is that going to do for people's blood pressure? What is that going to do for their state of mind? I mean, just yelling at anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it puts us in this state of dis-ease. Like I no yeah. longer feel at ease. It's chaos. It removes the calm. If I have to yell at my TV to get rid of ads, maybe that is preferable to watching the ad. But what does that tell you about the ad itself? And how we just want to skip it. We're willing to yell at an inanimate object in order to get rid of the advertisement. Which brings me to this week's sucky ad, TK. I've been hearing Arby's doing a lot of commercials on podcasts recently. And I guess there's some new roast beef sandwich that they're trying to hawk. By the way, I've had food poisoning five times in my life. 40% of those times were at Arby's. Just uh, a truth that I need to share here. (laughs) But I will say this. Here's how, imagine if we did do ads on this podcast, TK. Imagine if we were advertisers. And then, of course, what happens? They don't just insert ads into the podcasts. You as a podcast host also have to do the ad reads, which now makes it feel like I'm endorsing this product. And there are so many podcasts I listen to now that are now inserting these Arby's ads. They're doing the ad reads themselves. So I hear the sports broadcaster, Ryan Rossillo, who's like a manly man. And at the end of the Arby's commercial, he has to say, we've got the meats. Can you imagine being paid to tell someone, I've got the meats? (laughs) In a sincere way. Hey, TK, I've got the meats. You couldn't pay me enough money to say, hey, podcast audience, hey, listen up, minimizers. <laughs> I've got the meats. I think there's a pill. You know, you you know what I can guarantee that? now? I can guarantee it. I, this week, I'm going to get an email. Somebody's going to offer me like a $10 million check to say I've got the meats. <laughs> I know it. I hate to break it to you guys, but you guys just did it. <laughs> it's, it's over. <laughs> and it's you didn't over. get paid either. <laughs> Facts. He clearly missed the joke here. 
there's no way you could get me to sincerely say, I've got the meats. <laughs> I'll point out the absurdity of it. But paying me as a man, a human, that is, to say, we've got the meats, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> Let's move on to the home tour. This is home tour number 26 this week. We call this one, Jordan, the bookkeeper. And we have actually 10 photos to show you this week. Mm. Because a few weeks ago, we did the book clutter episode, TK. And right. I showed a photo of the bookshelf in the boundary, the book boundary that I have in my office. And these are all the books that I own. And we have the one in, one out rule that we talked about. If I want to go buy a book at a bookstore or yep. wherever, I have to take a, a book off my bookshelf to replace it. It's just a boundary that I have. I don't feel deprived. I don't have too few books. In fact, if anything... I have a no new books rule in my house. There's a moratorium on new books right now yeah. because I have enough unread books. I don't yeah. have many books at all, but I have enough unread books that I'm either going to read them or I'm going to get rid of them to make room for the books I actually want. The no new books rule for me means if I have any books on my bookshelf personally, I'm not prescribing this to anyone else. Professor yeah. Sean would be upset with this rule. It would not work for him. <laughs> and that's fine. It would I, ruin his life. I don't want him to have this rule. But for me, the no new books rule is simple. It just means that I want to read the books that I already own. I want to shop for books on my own bookshelf before spending money, time, resources, buying books elsewhere. However, if I do want a different book, what does that mean? I'm going to get rid of the books I'm not reading right now. If one trumps the books that I have currently, well, I can make space for it, but it entails letting go to make that space. I'm not going to make more space throughout my house for more books. However, I do have some books throughout my house, as you'll see through many of these photos. I have books that are decorative. And by the way, these are Bex's and my books all together. So not only do we use books to read, but we use them as sort of placement throughout the house. When we have guests over or if Ella just wants to start flipping through one of these coffee table books, you get to see Axel Vavort or this book right here you see on the screen here. This is a book about Wabi Sabi. So um, me, I'm pretty brutalist when it comes to design and architecture, but Bex, she's more the Japanese art of wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi mm. is like the art of imperfections, mm. having the imperfections throughout the house, not needing to be perfectly tidy and, and neat and symmetrical. It's having a few little cracks here and celebrating those cracks as well. Yeah, that's my whole look. That's my whole aesthetic. I'm just all wabi-sabi. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the next photo here. Danny Unleash is so upset at that joke. We're seeing different photos here. So I'm going to go by what Jordan is, has on his screen. Looks like uh, we got out of order here a bit, but that's okay. So this is a photo of my living room, another stack of books here. So this is like Norwegian architecture. And the book beneath that is a book about um, living in nature. So homes that are also homes. So there's the beauty of the sort of aesthetic of a home and the straight lines of a home, but existing in a space where there are no straight lines whatsoever. Nature does not have straight lines. Rob Bell has an audio program, an audio book called Show Me a Straight River. They don't exist. 
we create straight lines in our man-made world, but straight lines are not a product of our natural environment. And so seeing beautiful homes with all of their straight lines among nature, there's this really great juxtaposition here. That's my credenza in the living room. As you see, we have art on the TV there. We talked about that in the last photo tour on Patreon. You got to see, we bought our first TV in 12 years, but we use it mostly to just display art on our wall as opposed to watching programs ceaselessly. There's a book on our little stool there that Bex just finished. It's like an 1100 page novel. What's that called? 1Q84, something like that. Um, And I think it's the longest book she's ever read, but we like to sit on the couch each morning and at night and we tend to uh, just read for half hour to an hour together. Professor Sean, you were going to say something? I was just going to say that's Murakami, if anyone was curious. Yes, indeed. This next photo that you see here is of my living room, my coffee table. There's a a book by Axel Vavort, and I think the other one is... uh, Who is on that other book, Professor Sean? Can you see that closely? Or maybe even... Danny, you can take a look here. Oh, it's Dieter Rams. Less less and more? Yeah, Dieter Rams. So another design book. He created a lot of really beautiful consumer products before everything was a one-ply, throwaway, disposable version. Mm -hmm. You buy it on Amazon and it lasts six months and then you, you toss it. And there's something to be said for that in certain instances. If we go to a picnic and we have plates that we can throw away, totally understand. But we've moved into a disposable culture where everything feels disposable. Whereas, and I think what we've done is we've removed the beauty from many of our everyday objects. Mm-hmm. And Dieter Rams did a great job of <clears throat> inserting beauty, beautiful objects into our everyday life. And then of course, uh, you've heard me talk about Axel Vavort. He's my favorite interior designer. And that's one of his coffee table books there of some beautiful, beautiful spaces that he has designed the interiors of. Let's go to the next photo, Jordan. A uh, few books we have on our little coffee table, in tables here, side tables. Got a few books here. One is uh, Women in Design. And I bought this one for my daughter, Ella. And I thought it was inspirational for her. She loves seeing things that are beautifully designed. But she also likes to see, oh, there are a bunch of women who have designed some really amazing things that we use in our everyday lives. And so... She really enjoys flipping through that, but she'll come out into the living room with a little blanket and she'll just pick up the book and start flipping through it. Uh, the same is true with these other picture books we have here on on the stand as well. Uh, I think that top one is, who is that in the top book, Danny? Oh, it's, uh, oh, it's Donald Judd, my favorite minimalist artist. So some of his minimalist paintings and artwork are found in, in this book. And so just being able to look at art while you're there on the couch, not needing to own the art, yeah. but having access to it opens up a whole world. That's the thing I've noticed with Ella and some of these coffee table books. She'll start flipping through them and they look beautiful, but then it'll often take us to Wikipedia or to some other internet yeah. site. Yeah. So we get to explore more together as opposed mm-hmm. to me saying, all right, Ella, today our lesson is about Dieter Rams or it's about Donald Judd, right? He's going to say, oh, I don't want to learn about this. But if she comes to me and says, who, who made this painting? Yeah. It opens up a whole world for exploration. Yeah. yeah. Because we don't want to learn the things that are thrust upon us. Yeah. We want to learn the things about which we are curious. You're, you're living the very philosophy that you talk about a lot, which is instead of trying to coerce people, 
to change in the way you want them to change, stimulate curiosity in the way you live, and they'll come asking. Next photo, Jordan. Uh, it's a little bookshelf we have in our, it's like a, a, a beautiful work of art. It's like this cubist work of art that you could put books on. But of mm. course, you can only get a handful of books. All of my recent copies of Paris Review are here. But of course, what happens? So I get a new copy of Paris Review. It doesn't just take up more space. I have to get rid of the last one in the shelf. These are the books that I tend to be reading in the mornings. Uh, there's a, what's the Chronic City is a novel that I've been really enjoying recently. There are a few Kapil Gupta books on there. I'll constantly reference back. But I love just sitting on the couch in the morning and flipping through just a few pages. I'll read a chapter in one of these. I don't have to complete reading a book in one sitting. I can sit down, I can read something, I can get something from it, and I can set it right back on this little shelf that's on our floor here next to our couch. Next, next photo. Some more, some more books here. These are all the foreign copies of the minimalist books. So a lot of people use things and everything that remains and minimalism and essential. A lot of these are uh, just different languages. And obviously I can't read those, but it's, a, it's an artifact. It's a, it's a piece of art. And Ella gets to see those. She'll say, what language is this? And I'll say, I'm not sure. Let's pull out Google Translate and we'll <laughs> see what language it is. Because I don't know if this is Dutch or German. I can't read yeah. either, right? Neither can she. And Or maybe it's Australian. I can't read Australian very well. So many U's that are superfluous. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> they say no with an R in it. No. no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so cute. Next photo. Uh, yes, these are all of the um, Asian editions of Love People Use Things and our other books as well. You're stunning. Yeah, it's just the, the characters, which I, I can't make out at all, but I really enjoy it as a functional piece of art. Yes, these are the minimalist books, but also it works as art on a shelf here. And underneath that, I have a couple books. Like These are my books that are on deck. I think that one's from Ben Lerner. There's the new Bret Easton Ellis novel, The Shards, underneath that. And those are my books that are on deck. And this is my no new books rule. I have to read those books before I bring any more new books into my house because it's so easy to accumulate new books because my intentions are, I really, really want this new book. Next photo, please. Oh yeah, just another, this is in our bedroom, actually. There's a 150 minimalist homes, and there's a novel by Adrian McKinty called The Island. One of my, he's my favorite genre fiction writers. What's the other book that is there? I think that's, that's uh, Bex's book. I can't really read it, but the tallest one there on the left. We'll skip past it. Let's go to the next photo here. Ah, uh, yes, this is, these are Bex's like books in the kitchen. These are different books. Uh, I know one is from uh, our friend Crosby, whom most of y'all have met the fit baker. But Bex just has a handful of different books in the kitchen that she uses as recipe books because it's so much better to have a printed book than like an iPad or something in the kitchen. You're smearing yeah, your right. ingredients <laughs> all over the electronics. It doesn't seem to work as well. It's okay if a few ingredients get smeared on, on these books. Do you have any more photos in there, Jordan? Like we got one more photo. Oh, this is my actual bookshelf. So people ask, hey, can I get a list of all the books that are on your bookshelf? No, but you can zoom in here and you can you can find... And by the way, the list changes from month to month as I let go yeah. of books, then what is there also tends to change. In fact, 
I took that photo a couple of weeks ago and I can tell you the bookshelf is already slightly different from what it was just a couple of weeks ago. That is our Photo Friday home tour, patreon.com slash The Minimalists. You can find all 25 of our Photo Friday home tours over there. This is number 26. And uh, next week, we're going we're gonna to go inside Bex's she shed. Bex finally got a shed and she got rid of her storage locker. Yay. Oh, wow. We're going to talk about that next week. Any more questions from the Patreon live stream, Alabama? Yeah, we have one here from Catherine. She says, I have an acquaintance that has a habit of guilt tripping people. I decided to distance myself because she makes me anxious, but she keeps reaching out. In a recent text, she mentioned having a mental breakdown over my lack of response. How can I set boundaries that help her acknowledge the impact her drama is having on others? Mm. TK. Yeah, well, it seems like, it sounds like you created that distance um, and, 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 you know, probably rightly anticipated that she would give you a hard time about it. But since she keeps reaching out to you and is, is seeming to require some communication, I would just be pretty explicit but tactful about what I'm really doing here. I would, I would, I would let her know like, hey, look, this is nothing personal. This is what I need and let her know, even when she says that, you know, she's having this or that issue that, you know, you wish her the best, that you hope that she does well, but just be honest about what you can and cannot do. And um, yeah, I, I think if she keeps texting you back, then, and she's saying, hey, why aren't you communicating? It seems like she just doesn't know what's going on, but I would just let her know exactly what's going on. And I wouldn't defend myself to her if she comes back with, well, a good friend wouldn't do that. Once you state how you feel about it, once you state where it is, just let that be. Two words that completely changed my life. These are from Kapil Gupta. I understand. Yeah. Mm. And said with sincerity, those two words diffuse almost any situation. A good friend would not talk to me like this. I understand. How dare you treat me like that? I understand. Here's the truth, Catherine. You don't owe anyone a defense. You don't owe anyone an explanation. You don't have to prove to anyone that you are a good person, that you're winning, that you're right, that they should listen to you or that you have the correct point of view. You don't owe anyone your understanding. You don't owe anyone your righteousness. You don't owe anyone anything, really. Yes, you can be kind, you can be compassionate, but you don't owe them that. Being kind is wonderful. But if you are forced to be kind to someone, is that real kindness? Yes, I know a whole lot of nice people that aren't very kind because they put on the veneer, the smile of niceness. But deep down, there's a passive aggressiveness. There's a challenging. There's a, oh, TK, huh, you got a new car recently. And that can mean one of two things. It can mean I'm judging you. Oh, mm -hmm. must be nice, right? Mm -hmm. Or it could be I'm celebrating you. Congrats on your new car. But either way, you don't owe anyone an explanation for anything. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some more about less. A little article we have here from the Washington Post. A lot of people have been sending this to us recently. Here's what it's called. 
Marie Kondo's life is messier now. And she's fine with it. In the chill of January, we often examine how we are living. And right now, many of us are revisiting the tidying principles of Japanese lifestyle queen, Marie Kondo. But the ever-organized Kondo, it seems, is a bit frazzled since giving birth to her third child in 2021. Like most of us, she's having trouble keeping up with all of it. Never fear, though. She is still sparking joy. It's just that, these days, that doesn't hinge on having a tidy house. Her new rituals turn inward to more thoughtful things than a drawer full of perfectly folded t-shirts or an Instagram-worthy spice cabinet. Here's what I'll say. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes so you can read the whole thing if you'd like. This is why tidying up doesn't work. It sounds to me like what Marie Kondo has done now. She's embracing minimalism, intentional living. If tidying up worked, it would also work when you have three kids. The reason I knew minimalism worked when I first embraced minimalism wasn't because it worked simply for me, but it worked universally. The people who I was exposed to at first, Courtney Carver and her teenage daughter were minimalists. Colin Wright, a single young guy in his 20s who traveled the world, was a minimalist. And then I saw Leo Babalta, he and his wife and their six kids were minimalists. And I realized like, oh, minimalism works if you're that single peripatetic writer who's traveling the world, but it also works if you're a husband and wife couple with a blended family and six kids. Living intentionally works. You know what doesn't work? Constantly reorganizing everything. And this is when I say tidying up doesn't work. I think Marie Kondo in her books, especially the the life-changing magic of tidying up, She acknowledges that it goes beyond simply folding your shirts. Mm. It goes beyond having the Instagram-worthy spice cabinet. And there's nothing wrong with having those things. But universally, if you need to have the perfectly folded shirts in your drawer, otherwise you feel like your life is chaotic, then that's not going to work once your life is injected with a little bit of chaos. And of course, parenting is the first way to turn everything upside down. But the reason minimalism still works, minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things. You get to decide what's important to you, and that could be parenthood. It can be having all the spices in alphabetical order in your cabinet, but you get to decide what's important to you. And minimalism is about something much bigger than not looking messy to other people. Yes. Yes, because I cannot look messy to other people and still have a hoard of stuff. I can just have it really well organized. I can get the boxes and the bins and put them in my attic, in my closet, in my spare bedroom. I can have a storage unit, the biggest one they have, full of stuff. I can hide my clutter and it looks tidy, but it's still there. And not only is it there physically, that's not really the problem. The real problem is it's there in my heart, in my mind, in my psyche. It's weighing me down. It's getting in the way. And yes, I can tidy up the clutter. But of course, the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it. Get rid of the stuff that's in the way. Get rid of the things that are weighing you down. And whatever is left, I don't care how many things you own. You can have 100,000 things if it's all serving you, it's 
amplifying the joy within you, wonderful. But if it's getting in the way, if it's weighing you down, then of course, it's just clutter. And so, yes, Marie Kondo's life is messier now that she has kids, but it's messier because it's harder to tidy up when we have too many things to hide. And once you're confronted with chaos, it's harder to hide those things. Mm. It was easy when everything was neat and tidy and there was a place for everything. But now all of a sudden with three kids, it's like, oh, wait a minute. This tidying up thing, it's going to have to look a bit different for me. And I actually applaud her for that, right? Because what she's recognizing now is, oh, yeah, the life I was living before on my own with no kids looked appreciably different. Tidying up worked really well for me Mm -hmm. in that moment. But tidying up does not work for me anymore. And so a different version of tidying up actually does work for her now, but it has to do with jettisoning that which is superfluous and focusing on what's important right there in front of her. And to do that, you have to remind yourself that easier isn't the same thing as better. It was easier to tidy up when she didn't have children. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that it's better. Yes, indeed. For our added value segment this week, TK, I don't know how I missed this album in 2022. There is a band called The 1975, and you hear it playing in the background right now. I've never really been a huge fan of any of their full-length projects. I've liked them as a band. Some songs they've had have been great. But then I was at the grocery store a couple weeks ago, I hear the song playing over the speakers there. And I'm like, what is this song? So, of course, I asked Siri what song is playing. I'm like, oh, the 1975. Oh, they had an album come out at the end of 2022. It didn't make my end of year list. I really like the song. So I went and downloaded the album. And then I liked almost every song on the album. The album is called Being Funny in a Foreign Language. And the song you hear in the background right now is a song called Oh, Caroline. So we're going to play you out today with Oh, Caroline by the 1975. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, get well soon. TK Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. Big thanks to Nedra Tawab for joining us today. Her book is called Drama Free. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And if you leave here today with just one message, please let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. Peace. I've been suicidal. You've been gone for weeks. If I'm undecided, you decide for me. Maybe I'll do anything that you want to. I'll try anything that you want to. I'll try anything.